0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, as you know, if you've been listening for the last few days, Paddy is away. He will be back tomorrow, air travel willing, having a nice uh, break, celebrating a a family occasion. Paddy, I hope, has had a great time on his trip. We uh, look forward to having him back. Let me tell you, Paddy is a full-on professional. I am just a pretender because Paddy has it so well organized in the morning. My brain is popping with things this morning. Not that Paddy's isn't, but Paddy lays it out in a more cogent way. Manner. I don't know where I'm going to go, and who am the I? I am Tim Powers, and I am here with you for today. Uh, and as I say, uh, Patty should be back tomorrow. So, what's popping in my brain? Well, a whole bunch of different things. I have to tell you about my nemesis now. If you were listening yesterday, you might think my nemesis or nema, nemes, Nemesis or Nem-I hmm, Dave, find out what the plural is, is it Nem-I? Probably not, probably Nemesis it, oh, you, If you were listening yesterday, you could have thought it was maybe the Tony Wakem supporters who were calling in, who were not happy with my characterization of the leadership race, um, as I saw it Now, no they weren't here this morning, and we'll have Mr. Wakeham on later this morning, I look forward to talking to Tony, as I always do But, no, my Nemesis is this frigging raccoon I have this raccoon who comes into my garden probably five or six times a week looking for the wonderment of what might be in the trash and this morning I caught him which is rare I came down to let the cat out and they're looking in the raccoon has got so brazen now he comes and looks in our door the cat just kind of gives him a passing glance it's almost like they're friends looking right in not moving i start to open the door he stands there i'm wondering is he gonna run in Eventually, the cat, you know, managed a small growl, and kind of the raccoon made a small backward step, and we eventually chased the little bugger away, but it's so hard with their eyes. But I have to tell you, that friggin' raccoon, every time he comes in here, means my morning starts by picking up the garbage, and I, d- I don't know, we don't have raccoons in Newfoundland and Labrador, maybe we do now, but I have never seen any. I can't find a garbage tin or anything that repels the metal, whatever they have. Teeth that are sharp and they knock through everything. You got any tips for me on how to deal with my nemesis? I mean, I can't interview him like I can Tony, and Tony's not my nemesis, of course. I like Tony, as I say. But um, I'd like to win the war against that raccoon. And no, no, I'm not doing the obvious, keeping the garbage in the house, because that just makes the place stink. Speaking of stink, um, the stinky story of of, uh, the... The, uh, the, the the price of gasoline, well, more diesel up, eight, nine cents. And you wonder why um, there are people who are looking at the federal government and saying, hmm, we're not sure you get our pain Diesel up, eight, nine cents. You got the fuel surcharge. We talked about that last week. Want to talk about that? Let's do that. Um, it's, it's tough. Boy, you got to drive. You got to operate vehicles. You got to operate crafts. You need to... To run generators it is hard 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 out there but you already all know that um We're going to have Mr. Singh on, the leader of the NDP. He is in Newfoundland and Labrador. He'll be joining us in about five or so minutes. I'm going to ask him about the fuel surcharge too. his perspective on all of that. He, of course, is he seems to come down around this time of year. And he was spent time as a child in Newfoundland and Labrador. I know he's a great appreciation for the province. We'll get his take on this, uh, his take on NDP prospects and and a few other things when we talk to him. Now, um, again, I'm hopping everywhere this morning. Pee-wee Herman, Pee-wee Herman, dead. A lot of us grew up uh, watching the trials and tribulations of Pee-wee Herman, megastar who found went, went afoul of of, of morals uh, and behavior and got charged and died yesterday. He was only 70 years of age. You got anything you want to say about Pee-wee Herman? Any memories? Give us a call on that. Uh, Speaking of movies and celebrities, I went and saw Oppenheimer yesterday. I was telling Dave, it is powerful. I haven't seen Barbie yet. I understand it's equally as powerful. It didn't have the initial appeal to me, simply because I was dealing with the old stereotypes of Barbie, but I've heard many people I respect say it's a great movie, so I will eventually see it, but Oppenheimer. Uh, Utterly fascinating in a time when we are focusing on... uh, potential planetary challenges and uh, and suffering brought about by climate change. In the Oppenheimer era, of course, it was nuclear proliferation, and he, he along with others, built um, the first atomic bomb that uh, was used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and then eventually, then after that he became um, a, a, a proponent of uh, of uh, nuclear armistice and looking forward to f- finding peace and harmony, hoping that his rationale, as portrayed in the movie, was that the utilization of the bomb would deter people in the future from proceeding forward because of its horrors, and that's not, of course, What happened? But he was um, excoriated in the United States when he changed course and took the path of nuclear deterrence and ending or preventing an arms race. I I highly worth uh, I highly recommend People seeing it and look at it in light of some of the current debates we see about climate and the future of the planet and what we should be doing and the pace at which we should be doing it and and what what are the what are the public norms that people actually have and speak to. Um, it, it is great to juxtapose in that light. Well, 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 worth seeing. Speaking of seeing uh, and more in this case, hearing the stories this morning. Uh, from the interview that our team did with the, the chief medical examiner around the spike in cocaine deaths in uh, in the province uh, are jarring. I think, according to the news story, 11 people perhaps died uh, through cocaine use. You heard the wise words from the medical examiner saying, avoid it. Uh, again, we appreciate, uh, or I appreciate, not everybody can avoid it because of the addiction issues that they deal with. But it's terrifying. It's It's truly terrifying. In a pro- small province like Newfoundland and Labrador, eleven deaths potentially in the last little while related to cocaine. We're going to talk again today about addictions and mental health and, and the linkage and crime. I'm going to talk later this morning with Dr. Janine Hubbard um, in relation to the story we covered yesterday with uh, the, the sad story of the death of Ben uh, Oliveiro. And we talked to Harold Williams about addiction. We're going to talk to Janine about what addiction actually is and what can we do. We're all also going to talk to Dr. Adrian Peters from Memorial University about crime and its rise in Newfoundland and Labrador. All of these things connect. We're going to try and put a thread through it all. And most importantly, I want to hear from you on these issues. We had some really moving and powerful calls yesterday. And if I learned anything yesterday, because I got a lot of messages afterward, it's the calls from people who who have gone through this or had a family member gone through this who encourage and build the will in others to talk about it and talking is healing anyway so much to talk about so much to get to a really full show this morning made better by your calls i hope there will be lots of them i'm going to take an early break here on open line and when we come back i hope we will have the leader of the ndp mr Jugmeet singh with us here on vocm's open line time for a first break oh welcome back to open line just before i go to mr Singh, i love that ad the tetley tea room by the sea geez next time i come home and go to fairyland i gotta go to the tetley tea room by the sea good branding of course all you other sponsors do great branding too don't want to get in trouble with that today all right as mentioned please now to have uh, the leader of the ndp mr Jugmeet sing with us how are you this morning my friend
2: doing very well thank you very much
1: uh, full disclosure now I think you know this already I do a panel every Thursday with Mr. Singh's brother in Toronto who himself was an NDP uh, member of the provincial legislature and like his brother has a great passion for uh, for many important issues uh, in this country and like his brother also talks proudly of his time in Newfoundland uh, and uh, Labrador enjoy doing that with your Brother Guratan, uh, how is it to be back home in Newfoundland and Labrador? You've uh, you you come often. It, it's true, I come often, and it's really it's really great to be here. We
2: we had a great meeting, nominated our candidate in Saint John East. We've got uh, great excitement with the with the party volunteers and activists, and it's been really great to meet people. I've been chatting with lots of folks in and around the city, hearing their concerns and
1: hearing about some of the things that we need to focus on and then sharing
2: some of the solutions that we have.
1: It's been really great. One of the things I'm sure you're hearing about, and let's start there, and then we're going to get into St. John's East. But let me start on the fuel charge. You will, you'll, you will know that, sir. Uh, I talked about to the Prime Minister about it last week. It's a big issue in Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, the four Atlantic Premiers have asked for some relief uh, from the federal government because of the regional differences of applications. Three times the impact here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and the rest of uh, Canada than Ontario and Quebec. What's your view? on how the federal government should handle the premier's query for some relief on the fuel service charge.
3: Yeah,
2: first acknowledge that there's been a, a recent uh, increase in the cost of diesel and, and home heating fuel. And that's that's a really big deal, given that's one of the primary sources for heating homes in Newfoundland and Labrador, as, as your listeners and, and you know really well. So it, there is a big impact. Uh, we've called for lifting... Or, or getting rid of GST and HST off of home heating. Something that actually Jack Layton campaigned on when, when he was leader. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I believe in. It's something we need to do. It would provide immediate relief. It would get that, uh, that some of that, that burden off of people's shoulder. And we've made this decision to waive GST on essentials. And in a country like ours, home heating is an essential. It's something that we can't do without. And so that would be one way To provide immediate relief for people, that would happen
1: immediately. It could be removed
2: very quickly and it would be permanent.
1: Uh, And would you, so you do view that as a potential permanent solution? That would not be something that is temporary because others have talked about temporary measures. That if the NDP were in power, that's something you would do on a permanent basis?
2: Yeah, that's a permanent, uh, that would be a permanent solution uh, that would relieve some of the pressure. We've made that decision to waive GST, like I said, on other essentials. Mm. And and I would make the argument that home heating is an essential in a country that has long and cold winters like ours. Uh, the other thing we could do that would provide some relief is to give people really meaningful grants so that people could switch their, their home heating to something more affordable and something that would allow them to bring down their costs. That, that's something that could could happen but for a lot of people they can't fork up the money that's required to make that change they would love to if there was something available that's more affordable to heat their homes but if the cost is prohibitive it's so high then people can't really use the alternatives that might be more affordable that might engage in renewable energy or other sources of
1: of heating the home. Yeah, the, the uh, thank you for that. The, the the argument that some of the people who know this really well would make, and one we've made to the prime Min- one that w- was made to the prime minister here, and I think the premier's made to the prime minister, is that the fuel surcharge deals with the producers, and you, to be fair to you, have been an advocate of the wealthy corporations uh, not uh, redistributing their wealth in a manner that benefits consumers and provides Mm -hmm. them a relief. The other challenge, of course, as you know, in Newfoundland and Labrador, we don't have the bigger competitive market that you do in B.C., where you represent, in Ontario, where you're Mm -hmm. from. Uh, Do you have other thoughts on just the broader principle, and then I promise we will get to St. John's uh, East and and your tour to Newfoundland and Labrador, but do you have other thoughts on this issue of regional variance and how we apply climate uh, policies so that yes, we do reduce our climate footprint, but at the same time, don't impact significantly economic opportunity for people.
2: Well, th- there is there is a clear uh, regional difference across the country. Different areas are impacted differently, and so that means we need to be sensitive to that and have a, an approach that recognizes that. Some of the, the solutions uh, I think we laid out would would be beneficial. If you've got a solution, it's going to disproportionately benefit those that have been harder hit. So, so having the GSD off of home heating will help those that that feel it more. So, I would argue that it'll help Newfoundland and Labrador more. But in addition, I think there are, there's a good good case. We've been making this case for a while, and other countries have actually done it. For oil and gas companies that have made what's been record profits over the past uh, couple of years, they they are not paying their fair share, and there is a there is a way for us to redistribute that. That would benefit those that have been harder hit by that, that uh, record profit setting uh, for these, these companies, and then redistribute that in a way that helps out those that have been harder hit. So helping out folks that, that feel the, the pressures of not having competition in their markets, having higher costs or costs that impact them more than other communities. So those are some of the things I think we should absolutely look at. And we've long been calling for what the United Kingdom put in, which is uh, an excess profit tax on the, on the oil and mm-hmm. gas, sector to redistribute some of that the record-setting profit that they've made to benefit the actual people that are being impacted.
1: Um, St. John's East, you were there last night, sir. You uh, were part of Mary Shortle's nomination meeting. I have to think mm-hmm. that that is uh, a target for you come next election time. That was a very close seat. It's been a seat that you've held. As it relates to St. John's East and other Atlantic Canada opportunities, are you going to be specific in looking at seats you once held? What I mean, I don't want you to give away all your strategy, but what is your thinking mm-hmm. on how the NDP starts to win back seats in Atlanta? Atlantic Canada? Well
2: having great candidates and that's Mary Shortle, uh, candidates that are willing to run again. Again Mary Shortle running again. Someone's got a profile. She was the president of the Federation of Labor in Newfoundland and Labrador so she's someone that's been a fighter for workers and and that's been really our focus for our workers party. We want to make sure workers know that we've got their back and we really want to show folks that we deliver results in a time when there's been two back-to-back minority governments I would would have a hard time naming any really concrete victories that other parties have secured that have made people's lives better, where we were constantly fighting to get help to people, whether it was in the pandemic, getting more relief, more support, more money in people's pockets, making sure wage subsidies are there for, for workers to keep their jobs, or now with the minority government, we're delivering things like dental care which will really support people here in Newfoundland and Labrador. The program by the end of this year is going to cover seniors, people living with disabilities and kids 18 and under, and that is going to cover thousands of people in Newfoundland and Labrador. Give them the ability to go in to see the dentist, get their teeth looked after, and and really save them money. It's going to be a significant cost saving as well. So that's something that we're really proud of and we want to show show the people of Atlantic uh, Canada that if you want someone that's going to fight for you and deliver results, we have done that. And if you elect more of us, we can do a
1: lot more. And I know you get this question all the time, so I apologize for asking it, but how are you going to differentiate? Because you do have the agreement with the Liberals. You have the Supply and Confidence Agreement that goes until 2025. I I think you and I would would agree that Liberals are very good at utilizing the work of others and claiming it as their own at a time when they're trying to get votes. Um, You were wise. You came out to Newfoundland uh, just after the budget and pushed the dental care plan plan, uh, which, uh, which was something you had pushed, as you said before, and developed. But how do you manage this, Mr. Singh, whereby you, you've worked together to get things, but at a certain point in time, both you and the Liberals are going to put your hand up and say, vote for me, vote for me, I got this done, and not get big-footed by the Liberals?
2: That's a, that's a constant question, and it's a, it's a fair question. I think it's clear in this case, there's just a lot of examples and a lot of evidence that This is something the Liberals would not have done but for us. We can point to uh, their votes where we put this idea forward two years ago and they voted against it. We can put um, the evidence that we ran on it two times in a row and the proof will be in the pudding in the sense that people will have it. By the end of this year, it will actually be up and running and we can show the Liberals would not have done it. They voted against it multiple times. They teamed up with the Conservatives to oppose it. Now we're making it happen, and people are getting the support. And I think there's a real sense amongst Canadians across the country that they may not know specifically what we're getting, but they get a sense that we fought and we pushed for them. And that's important for people to know, that if they want results, that we're the ones that, that fight for it, we're the ones that force government to deliver and that's, that's something we're going to rely on. But there's a lot of things we disagree on, and I think that's really important. We, we are firm believers in a public health care system, and I know people in Newfoundland and Labrador are proud of that. But uh, the liberals have kind of been uncertain on that. They, they initially said it's important for them, and then they called... Doug Ford's privatization plan is innovative, and that's the prime minister's own words. So he has uh, been unclear on whether he believes in fully public or does he believe in some privatization. When it comes to the cost of housing, which is a big concern in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have a very different position. We think the federal government should be very aggressively involved in building more homes, particularly purpose-built rental, so just rental where it's really affordable and non-market housing we need a mix of housing we've looked at other countries around the world that have affordable homes and it can't be done with purely market housing because market home prices and market rents are just too expensive for people we need an alternative as well alongside the private options we need uh, non-market options that are being built so there's there's a real distinction there when it comes to making sure people have a uh, affordable cost of living, we're fighting the grocery the large corporate grocery chains that are making, I would say gouging Canadians making large profits. and we've got the evidence now with the competition Bureau which has found that they have increased their margins in this period of time when people are struggling to buy their groceries. Mm-hmm. and we're the only party saying we need to go after this corporate greed and tackle it with uh, a tax on their excess profits that discourage this gouging. So we've got some real key pieces of difference. We've got uh, real good evidence that shows what we fought for and what we
1: achieved, and we're going to put that to, to the electorate and it'll be people's choice where they vote. Two last questions for you, about two minutes, because I know you're busy. you got a lot on the go here in St. John's. The second last question is, and <laughs> this is one you've got, again, thousands of times, so I apologize for you having to answer it again, but maybe new to the Newfoundland and Labrador listeners, and that is, is the agreement with the Liberals going to make it to 2025? Um, I, that's the intention, but do you see it actually making it to 2025?
2: I think it's, it is a question I get a lot, but it's a fair question. I, I say this. My, my, my goal is not to find an excuse to trigger an election. My goal is to get government to work for people. We, we had two back-to-back minorities in a row with pretty much the same makeup, and we made a decision that we need to force this government to deliver. That's our, that's our goal. As long as we can continue to deliver results for Canadians... We're going to continue to fight for that. If it comes to a point where we can no longer, there's repercussions in our agreement if the, if the Liberals don't follow through. That's our goal. And ultimately, what we've seen in the past and with this government, but, but in general with history, is that it's the governing party that will decide when the election happens. Mm-hmm. Our goal, again, is to make sure we get results for people and get people to care, get people to farm care, get people
1: to the help they and ultimately the government will decide when there's an election. And uh, last one for you, are you uh, tell us about the rest of the tour. I know you're doing an event at uh, Kitty Vitty, the Dominion down there today, probably to talk about grocery pricing and and, and, uh, and other things. What else are you doing while you're in Newfoundland and Labrador?
3: Yeah,
2: so we, we had a number of meetings with uh, with workers, with labor leaders. We'll be doing the event uh, that you mentioned. We'll be going to a grocery store to talk about grocery prices and our plan to to fight the rising cost of groceries. We've got some other meetings in town, and then we'll be attending the regatta with my team and I. Uh, I also have my daughter. Are my you wife. rowing? Are you going to row? Yeah,
4: we'll, uh,
1: <laughs>
2: you know what? I'm not, probably not going to row, but I'm definitely going <laughs> to attend and, and cheer folks on. Uh, and my daughter's actually about the age I was when I first moved to oh. St. John's. So she's a year and a half. I moved here when I was about two years old. So okay. uh, we'll give her some, some core memories of being in St. John's around the same age as I was when I was here.
1: And I, I, I know you're, uh, you're expecting another child probably a little too early for that child to be born in Newfoundland and Labrador, but that'd be a real vote, vote getter, Mr. Singh, if you pulled that off. Good point, good point. Well, that's in <laughs> December, so we got some time to make the plans action. <laughs> All right, well, good to talk to you this morning. Uh, appreciate it and uh, people will uh, will see you in and about uh, the city of St. John's and elsewhere. Thanks for the time today. Thanks so much. Take care. That was uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP. Uh, again, you heard some differences there with the the Liberals, particularly as it relates to the fuel service charge um, and what they may do. Though, again, want to point out, and I think this has been drilled into my head, and it's important that we separate it. Mr. Singh was talking about providing permanent relief on home heating oil and the like. That has some connection to the fuel service charge because. Obviously, you're buying the product from uh, from uh, entities that produces produce it, but the fuel ch- fuel sur- surcharge touches a broader swath of, um, uh, of of expenses and and items because that charge is ca- <laughs> carried by producers and the like and we don't have uh alternatives to the same degree they do elsewhere so have any comments on mr singh's interview or questions please give us a call uh okay dave where am i going now you know what here's where i'm going to go um i am going to take a break here at vocm's open line and when we come back let's talk to dr janine hubbard about addiction back with you
0: shortly here on vocm's open line Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions. Plus, interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays. Your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to Open Line Now. Yesterday,
1: we were really all taken, I think, and how could you not be, over the, the tragic story of young Ben Olivero found dead on the weekend from uh, from an overdose uh, as his mom Tino said so well and courageously he suffered from addictions issues and struggled and struggled and as our callers revealed yesterday Ben was not alone there are many people that are struggling and have had challenges and continue to have challenges with addictions in that light I wanted to reach out to, to somebody who has proper medical and professional training on all of this and she's frequent guests uh, on this program and that's Dr. Janine Hubbard Janine how are you today
5: good morning Tim thanks so much for reaching out.
1: Yeah, I thought it look, a lot of people talk about addictions. A lot of us think we understand addictions, but I wanted a professional to give us the, you know, the 101 on what addictions are. So what is addiction, Janine?
5: Um, Well, and again, certainly I have colleagues who can speak in much more depth on this, Um, but um, I think, first of all, it's really important to remember addictions can happen to any of us. No one sets out. To become addicted, um, it's often a very slippery slope. Uh, it can be something like you've had surgery and you were given some pain medication. It could be that uh, you, as a teenager, went to a party and had some alcohol and some cannabis and went, oh, this feels really good. Mm-hmm. Um, what we know is um, it comes in really there are I guarantee you every single one of us has a friend family member colleague struggling with some level of addiction so um, the fact that this uh, conversation is happening and is people are being really open about it is extremely important um, just because of the amount of stigma that goes along with it but essentially um, an addiction is um, and keeping in mind we're talking about substance use here, but it could be gambling, it could be shopping, it could be gaming, it could be porn—like it's anything where, when we uh, consume it, we feel better. It makes us feel good, and/or it helps us escape from pain or numb feelings. And the—and I mean, we all engage in activities that do that from time to time. Mm-hmm. The difference is um, when it starts to be happening at a frequency and an intensity that it's interfering with life. So it's causing us, it's not just, you know, a temporary, oh, I've had a really rough day and I'm going to have a glass of wine Mm -hmm. and veg out with TV. It's starting to interfere and you see people building up a tolerance so that what once was able to kind of meet the needs in, you know, that need increases and it increases and increases. And that's where you see people who might have started with something um, as was described here, you know, as um, maybe maybe some cannabis or some tobacco, where it then escalates because the physiological and psychological needs aren't being met with the current
1: dosage. Uh, focusing on usage more alcohol and drug, and again yeah. appreciating this is not your precise line of expertise, but you are a trained, yeah. you, you certainly know it better than, than I do and most of the listeners, I suspect. Um, how come, because you often hear this, it is difficult with an addiction just to go right off it. We have all heard stories of people who suddenly go cold turkey, and God bless them, whether it be on alcohol use or drug use, but why can't you just turn it on and off?
5: That would make life so much easier, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it, Uh, yes. Partly, um, and I mean, we know that there, like I say, there's a physiological tolerance that can build up, as well as psychological, but the... Main message that I want people to leave from is addictions don't just occur in a vacuum. Addictions are typically a form of self medicating something else that's going mm-hmm. on and unless you address the something else whether that's um an undiagnosed condition such as adhd is a huge one that leads to lots of self-medication whether it's undiagnosed or just untreated uh history of trauma um depression anxiety there are an awful lot of underlying mental health conditions that one of the coping strategies not a great coping strategy obviously but one of the coping strategies people go to is substance use use to treat to uh, address the issues of that mental illness so unless we are addressing the underlying condition you're not going to get very far with the addiction piece itself that's why people keep going back and keep going back because we haven't treated the actual condition we've treated the symptoms the addiction are, are symptoms
1: Mm-hmm. Um, two last questions. Yeah. What can we as a community do to make a difference in making sure, one, there's greater understanding, two, there's greater resources? I mean, there's so many different aspects yeah. of it. But if what would be the number one thing, and you do a lot of community advocacy, that yep. the people could do to help those struggling with addictions?
5: I think people designing programs need to listen to the consumers. They need to find out what the needs are right on the ground level because it is so multifaceted. Um, It is so complicated. Uh, We describe addiction as following what we call a biopsychosocial model. That means there's biology involved. So, again, if you're a parent um, and there's addictions in your family history, really important to be talking to kids and teens about it. Uh, There's the psychological, which I've kind of talked about again. If there is a potential for underlying mental health, trauma, any of those kind of things the importance of addressing them and dealing with them and then there's the social um i mean you know we joke about the mommy wine, wine drinking memes online yeah. um we are a province where substance use in a social context is very common and again depending on who you socialize with and how you socialize it can become much more normative or just exposure is much easier so addressing all of those plus all the again we've talked you know, at length about Mm -hmm. um, all the other societal things. But if I could say anything, please talk to people with lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I know the theory behind it. I know the biology. I know the, you know, that piece of things. But can I tell you what is best needed in the system besides more access to mental health services, obviously, um, you know, we we need to be starting on the ground level.
1: And uh, and the last question builds off of that, and is if you are an individual who's struggling right now, who's suffering with with um, through and with addiction, uh, and you you are getting some help, perhaps you are seeking out learned experience. Where can you go for help uh, to to begin to get uh, the resources and assistance you need?
5: Uh, I was just looking this up for a family last week. Uh, Bridge the Gap certainly has a lot of information and in contact for some of the different programs. Are out there, um, but what I would say is at the most basic level, if you're hearing some of this, because again, remember it's a slippery slope, it starts sometimes. It's if you happen to have a physician to say, Hey, you know what? I've noticed, you know, since COVID, I know I perhaps started drinking a little bit more and I'm still doing that, and maybe that's something I need to address. Or reaching out to a loved one and saying, um, This is kind of feeling like it's getting out of control, reaching out and talking talking about it in a way and again the more we can normalize the more we can talk about the fact that this can happen to anybody and it does happen in varying degrees um so trying to address at that early stage and saying hmm what is it I'm avoiding what is it you know um that maybe are some of the things in my life that I need to be addressing or I need to help a family member address and the first step I mean they talk about it all the time but it's Reaching out and asking for some help.
1: Mm-hmm. Can't uh, can't say uh, or reinforce that point enough. Uh, thank you, Janine. Always appreciate your time, particularly on uh, on issues like this one that are so in our faces right now. And uh, we need to seize the moment of tragedy to help educate and, and empower people to, to get the help they need. Thank you.
5: Well, thank you for using the show to um, uh, for that format. Thanks, Tim.
1: All right, thanks. Dr. Janine Hubbard uh, giving us some insight into the challenges of addiction. Now, we're going to go to Bernadine Bennett and Glenn Brown, the Mary Sh- Shipyard uh, Families Alliance. Pardon? Oh, they're gone. Huh? No, we're not. <laughs> oh, there, there you are. Okay. <laughs> are you there, Bernadine and Glenn? I had two people speaking in my, I, my ear. Are you there? Yes, we are. Uh, You're with the Marystown Shipyard Families uh, Alliance. Uh, You want to respond to something the Chief Medical Examiner said today.
6: Go Uh, ahead. Yes, we did. Tim, thank you very much for uh, allowing us time on your show. Um, We we are the co-chairs of the Marystown Shipyard Families Alliance Incorporated, and we represent occupational disease uh, claimants from the Marystown Shipyard, uh, the workers and the families. And uh, we wanted to. We were listening to uh, Dr. Denick and uh, our Health Minister Tom Osborne concerning, obviously, the the crisis with the uh, drug problem in our province. And we absolutely sympathize with those families and and the situation there. Um, when it comes to um, deaths with no ex with uh, not enough attention being drawn to it, we we and discussed it on the level of uh, what we do, which is represent uh, sick and injured workers. To date, our group can, ex- can, um, can account for 225 deceased members from the Mary's Township yard.
1: Oh, my um, goodness.
6: Absolutely. And we, we also represent over 140 now claims of um, occupational disease claims through our group alone, um, and that's either a sick worker or their family. Um, a year ago, we took our concern to the chief medical coroner, Dr. Venick, uh, about those large number of deaths coming from one work site. And we were told that um, because those deaths were not registered as occupational disease, uh, there would be no investigation. And um, we, we'd like to speak a little bit further on that and why that's, that is happening. And so can can add, add further to that. Thank you.
7: Yeah, like um, deaths are deaths. They're all they're all yes, serious. Um, we we um, reached out to Occupational Health and Safety. We met with them. We also reached out to uh, the Chief Coroner and the Chief Medical Officer for the province. Now, the Chief Medical Officer never responded. Uh, the Coroner uh, stated that these deaths were not registered. Uh, the other places that we reached out to was Memorial University because Memorial University has partnered with Safety Net, or uh, Safety Net has partnered with Alco in Ontario to um, look into the occupational disease deaths uh, in this province. The concern with that is the coroner's response that these deaths were not registered um causes concern because how are they going to investigate disease deaths that are not registered? The other concern about that is that we've been working with uh, Workplace NL um, since 2006 um, in regards to the disease and deaths coming out of the Marystown shipyard. Mm-hmm place. Now, there's been 13 environmental assessments done on that shipyard. It's been indemnified by the government three times. The companies are protected from the said presence of the known contaminants of the shipyard, yet the all the entities in this province that are governed to protect these workers are silent. Um, we have been advocating to to Memorial University, uh, the government, to come to come here and investigate why these deaths are occurring. the The conclusion is: Why would Memorial University and Alcal ignore such a contaminated worksite? Um, it all points to these indemnification agreements. I don't know if you ever heard of
1: Grassy Narrows. Yeah, oh, uh, I'm very familiar very, with Grassy Narrows. Uh, well, I, I would just say. It, shipyard. Yeah. Go ahead. No, oh, you go, you go. Uh, you know, this, this shipyard is a mere example of Grassy Narrows. <laughs> Well, I, I just stop you for a second. Um, again, I, I'm just catching, learn, coming up to speed on all this, just important questions you're raising there uh, about all the various partners uh, or people who should be part and parcel of this. I don't know enough of the jurisdictions to uh, to know whether the, the inquiries you're making are right, but I would ask this. So you've got a platform today what is it you would like to see happen? If there were one or two things that could happen, what would they be?
3: See,
7: in this indemnification agreement, these people are protected. This agreement is sealed, uh, not to be disclosed to the public. We are represented by a national, one of the biggest national unions in this country representing these workers, they are not taking up the cause. The Marystown Shipyard Families Alliance has been doing this since 2006 um, with no resources, mm-hmm. no money. And someone needs to take okay. take up the position that these people are dying in vain. They they don't need to be dying. We've asked for an intake clinic. To assess all these people and we're not being heard
6: um, uh, if I could speak for just for a minute in yeah, and, and uh, just
1: about we... 30 seconds Bernadine because I have to go to, to, to take one more call before the break but go ahead
6: in 2014 our group put together a 300 page document uh, report concerning the exposures and the hazards and the disease outcome from a shipyard as it's like from the Mary Shipyard and under the guidance of an occupational disease expert. And we put that in in 2014, asking the compensation board any claims coming in from the Mary Stein Shipyard to be adjudicated under that report, and they absolutely refused because... Okay in order, because if they continue to adjudicate claims individually, they get away from Collie Marystown, what it is, which is a cluster of occupational disease. We need an intake clinic here, and it should have been done here 20 years ago. These men are dying, and nobody is batting an eye
1: okay well thank you for raising it here thank you for giving voice to it I'm, I'm sure our news team will will dig into it and you're always welcome to continue to call open line and talk more about it uh Bernadine and glenn thank you very very much yep, thanks thank you very we much. appreciate it okay thank you before we go to break i got a raccoon tip i think walter you got some raccoon tips for me what are they
7: uh yes tim you there
1: I'm there tell me how do I manage this this monster in my okay, backyard
7: first I have to forewarn you this going to be as exciting as your other callers. But it's <laughs> it a could be to much me. much more interesting and much more important. Uh, I'm from Ontario and we used to, uh, I'm from Brantford and we used to have okay. a lot of uh, 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 raccoons around. Uh. They won't come out in the in light. They'll, uh, they will they only come out at night when it's dark and okay. uh, what we used to have to do is uh, put a light under our back porch and put ah. it on at, at the night. Once they see the light, they'll stay away. Now, my uh, neighbors used to put the uh, uh, motion sensing lights on their garbage. And, uh, like, they're just battery-powered ones, uh, but they're yeah, sensors. Yeah. And they put them in a, a, a tree right over where the garbage cans were. That way, if there's any emotion, the light would come on, and they'd take off. So uh, I hope that helps you a little bit. Uh, that's that, that's
1: awesome. The other thing I heard uh, was you do the Manuel Noriega, and you might get the reference. When they tried to get them out of Panama, they blared the music. But I don't think my neighbors are going to like blaring music all all night. But the motion sensor lights, all right, I'm going to go up to uh, Canadian Times hire afterwards and get some oh, thank okay. you
7: yeah, bb gun works good too oh jeez listen helps.
1: my my mother used to run the spca she won't let me shoot anything she'd have me shoot myself before i shot a shot a raccoon anyway probably with uh, good reason
3: uh, what part how uh, uh, do you live in i used to live there
1: I live in Westboro uh, uh, in, on a street called Avondale, fittingly oh. enough. And another Newfoundlander used to live here, Colin Greening, who played with the Senators. So, but the raccoons don't discriminate. Senators, players, or or, uh, or uh, rascals from St. John's East, they get us all. Anyway, got to leave it there. Thank you, hey, Walter.
8: Sure, Tim, good luck with it.
1: Okay, bye. All right, that was a good tip. Mom, I'm not going to shoot the raccoon. He's the friend of the cat. Can't be doing that. All right, time for a break here on VOCM's open line. I believe we have Tony Wakeham coming up after that and more of your calls. All right. Busy morning here. By the way, the raccoon has not reappeared because it is daylight. But I do have now uh, another of the top candidates in the PC leadership race in Newfoundland and Labrador, the MHA for Port-a-Port-Stevenville. Tony Wakeham, Tony, 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 your supporters, they were going apoplectic on me yesterday because I just mused, just mused, and I said, I don't have a poll. I got nothing else, that I, the spin I was getting was that Eugene Manning had a slight lead over you, that's all I said, you've got to calm them down, man, they're very well,
9: passionate. That's exactly right, Tim, I have a, uh, I'm very fortunate, humbled and honored, to be honest with you, with the... Uh, team of volunteers, people who have, are given up and volunteering mm-hmm. volunteering to work on this campaign uh, with me, and uh, they have a passion for Newfoundland and <laughs> Labrador, and they have a passion for ensuring that the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador elects the right leader, because the ultimate goal is not simply uh, become leader of the PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador, is become the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I, I really, I think I noticed how intense the race was yesterday, uh, and, and Look, I know some of the calls are deliberate and all of that. have been around leadership races, as have you. Um, how is it going from your perspective? I know you've released some policy planks. I see you on social media. You've uh, equally got a lot of endorsements, particularly from caucus. How is it playing out so far as you head to the vote in October and the end of, uh, of voter sign-up uh, in, in the weeks ahead? Exactly.
9: The, the voter sign-ups will, will end on August 15th, two weeks from today. So uh, people who want to support the uh, PC party of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, need to sign up within the next two weeks and uh, help us defeat the Liberal Party here in, in the province. My uh, campaign has been phenomenal, and uh, the support has been overwhelming. I've been very fortunate to put a team together that includes people with no political experience, with mm-hmm. people with lots of political experience, former MHAs, current MHAs, and Tim, a number of young students who have joined our team who bring a different perspective to that. And as I've traveled across this province and met with people in their communities, and, you know, those issues are the same, I think, in just about every single community. You know, it's about access to health care. It's about cost of living. Those are the things that are top of mind for people. Now, there are a lot of other issues underneath that that we need to deal with. But those are the two that that have come out uh, on top in terms of what people want to talk about.
1: In terms of what lessons did you learn, Tony, from the last leadership race that you brought to this one? Because you've been through this before. Uh, you just came up very short last time and then went on to take a senior critic's role and then to have been finance critic or shadow minister, however you term, decide to, to phrase it. What did you learn last time that you're bringing this time to the race to up your opportunity at at least winning the leadership race and potentially becoming premier
9: well again the last time i entered this race i had no political experience uh i was asked to uh, to run and i accepted that uh challenge and uh but i entered the race late and so i was behind from the start and was playing catch up this time around i've been able to keep and and uh, the people that supported me the last time are still supporting me, which is a major plus. And now I've had that opportunity, as you said. I've been elected to the House of Assembly twice. I've taken on uh, critic roles in finance and uh, and others, and I've been able to... Uh, show the people of Newfoundland and Labrador that uh, I have that leadership skill, I have that ability to lead. And that's, uh, you know, I've proven that. My whole career has been about leadership, whether it's been in the public sector or the private sector. And I have the advantage of having lived and worked all over Newfoundland and Labrador. I literally lived and worked all over Newfoundland and Labrador and that allows me to bring a different perspective about how people live in their communities and how they want to be treated and that's the kind of thing that I've been focused on Tim it's about people it's not about politicians it's about the people and how can we help the people in Newfoundland and Labrador improve their lives
1: Help me with this one, because a version of this leadership race I've been given, and again, I say to people who are listening, and you've been through a couple now, I've been through numerous leadership races, and there are always narratives that people push. Some are true, some are are verging on truth, and others are outright myth. So tell me where this fits. The version of this leadership race that I have heard is that um, you, as you've described, have a support of a lot of your caucus mates, a lot of established party workers, whereas... Uh, Mr. Manning has the support of you know a younger outside contingent who want to make change uh, and that there's this divide and again I have no idea if that's true or not Tony I'm not as connected to the PC party of Newfoundland Labrador as I
9: wanted to where does that story fit in the realm of truth well, it certainly doesn't reflect itself in any of the people that are signing up to join our campaign and have identified themselves as, as supporters of uh, Tony Wakeham and, uh, and our campaign. As I said, we have a number of uh, young people who have joined directly joined our team and we have many, many more who have signed up to support us and continue to sign up and support us. So I don't see that divide. I think this is about choosing the right leader in the right time. Choosing a leader with the experience to get things done and that's what this has to be about because it's like I said before it's not just about winning the leadership of the PC party it's about becoming the next premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and i have been a leader all my life i have led private organizations with over 600 employees my own company i have i have led healthcare authorities with over 1500 employees as you said i've been elected to the house of assembly twice now i've also been elected as president of the provincial basketball association i've been elected president of the national basketball association i bring those those skill sets to be able to build teams and that's a proven skill set that i have You know, I'm as comfortable in the boardroom as I am in the kitchen. And, Tim, as an athlete, you know yourself. It's not just about the leader. It's about building those teams because you cannot win without a team. Uh, no, that is most certainly true, and uh, I also know, as you do, and we talked
1: about this before, leading a national sports organization, it's not for the faint of heart on any, any day of the week. La- last question for you, it's the same one I asked uh, Eugene, and it, and it is, and you've touched on it, but I'll give you a minute maybe to, to wrap it up, and that is, what, what, does, what would Tony Wakeham be, or what would he bring to the Premier's chair?
9: I will bring a government that's more open and transparent than any government we've seen in the history of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador because I believe that. It is the people who make the decisions around what we should or shouldn't be doing. And this too much secrecy in government right now. There's an opportunity here for us to do things differently. I believe that it should be about people, not about politicians. Tony Wakem brings the experience of having lived and worked, as I said, across the province of Newfoundland. I have been there. I have been a leader. I am a leader. I continue to lead. And I will continue to lead this province in the direction where I believe the people of Newfoundland want to go. That's a. Big- in which sees us as a healthy, prosperous Newfoundland and Labrador, where life is affordable, health care is accessible, and no opportunity is left untapped. And, Tim, no one is left behind. Uh,
1: you did it in the minute. As I said to Eugene, you guys are both getting good at giving your pitches, and Lord knows you have to be with uh, two weeks to go with voter sign-up. I appreciate the time today. Tony, good luck to you. And see, supporters of Tony, we can be fair. I like Tony, too. I'll be careful with my words. I don't want the wake em for <laughs> putting me in a wake again. Anyway, take care to get to today, Tony. Take Thank care. You. Thank you, Tim. Okay. All right. Tony Wakeham, uh, one of the candidates for the PC leadership race in Newfoundland. and Labrador. Time for the news here at
0: VOCM. Back with more of your
1: calls after that.
0: Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Well, yesterday, one of the stories that caught my attention, and no doubt yours, was the state of the crime rate in Newfoundland and Labrador rose 4% last year, but 13% from 10 years ago. So, to dive into this a little bit and and help us navigate it, I am joined and happy to be joined by Dr. Adrian Peters, an assistant uh, professor, undergraduate director of criminology, Department of Sociology at uh, Memorial University, board chair FAST Newfoundland, peer support coordinator, Seventh Step Newfoundland. uh, Dr. Peters, good to have you this morning. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm okay thank you Um, but I I am kind of scratching my head about the the crime data some of it is not surprising to me but let's dig into it a little bit so uh, it came from Stats Canada it's their crime activity index I believe it was called what is that so what is it looking at What, what crime is it looking
3: at
10: And that's really, I think, where we need to start asking the question. So this is police reported crime activity as um, highlighted in the report and as stated in its title itself. So where we get our numbers from in Canada and that we then use in Newfoundland and Labrador, these are all official crime statistics. So these come from our police, the courts and corrections, and these specifically are police-based only. So these are activities that are being reported to the police. The police are responding to, following up on and uh, um, investigating and are asking questions and finding out if there is a case um, to move forward with and then delay a charge.
1: And so, obviously, the unreported crime is not can, uh, is not part and parcel of that data. Any idea on what the unreported crime might be? Is there any way to extrapolate or, or, or enumerate what that might actually be?
10: Yeah, and so that's where we look to unofficial types of data and, and research to, to kind of assess what's going on behind closed doors or or that dark figure of crime, as we call it. So oftentimes people don't want to report things to the police, mm-hmm. um, maybe as a result of changing dynamics of the police and trust, maybe coming from another place where there's lots of corruption in the legal system, so they don't want to report it to the police, but they're still maybe experiencing certain um, incidents. Obviously, that a lot with sexual assault, especially mm-hmm. among women, under a reporting of certain incidents among children um and it kind of can really vary but we see a lot of sexual assault and we also see it with certain um historically marginalized groups may be less likely to also go to the police seeking help or assistance
1: so when we look at the the the, the data and comparative uh, data is so very important i think we were the national crime rate was up by two and we were up by four what explains that uh, anomaly or is or sorry that's not an anomaly what explains that what, how how do we how are we higher than the national rate that seems strange to me because again i i live i'm currently in ontario and i see the, the, the see the actual stories of crime here i see the stories of crime in british columbia i mean it all comes back to the reporting i guess does it
10: a lot of it's reporting, and it, all, it comes down to the priorities of the police as well. So keeping in mind that because this is all okay. provincial and territorial, that police make different decisions about what they're going to prioritize given the ongoing needs, but also the ongoing resources they have available to them in a particular area. So that's also going to dictate what they're seeing and what they're responding to. Um, but if you look at the numbers, two and four percent—I mean, those are so small to begin with—and especially compared to one another, they're not really that significantly different. Um, I think what we really need to take away from this, though, is that our province is changing. We are a dynamic place. We are growing. It's ex- there's exciting changes happening here. But if we're not prepared and ahead of some of these changes, and are prepared for what the world is bringing to us as well, including some of the challenges around mental health and, and addiction, then we're going to continue to see our numbers maybe match those in other parts of our country that we're not used to historically.
1: Was that 13% rise over a decade a surprise to you, or is that captured in the comments you just made?
10: I think it's really captured in the comments I made. And, and, and this just goes back to the fact that Newfoundland and Labrador has historically been so, so safe and has had such a low crime rate that any change in these numbers, we're go- they're going to look um, much bigger than they actually are. And Stats Canada kind of talked about that, whether these are absolute or relative comparisons, which is important to look at. But still, we are seeing changes here. If you, if you look at the baseline that we're coming from, where we started, it's so, so, so low that we're going to naturally have some some changes to these numbers that shouldn't really necessarily be alarming, but should certainly raise some questions for our community members, our government, and our justice system.
1: So on that, I mean, we can all look at data, we can pick apart data, that part and parcel of of what you do professionally, but at a base level, people want to know, are they safe or not safe or less safe than they were? Where are we on the, the human identification of being safe in Newfoundland and Labrador?
10: I think that's a question we all have to ask our, ourselves personally and ask mm-hmm. ourselves even what that what that means to us what does safety mean and look like. Um, and I think it's concerning because a lot of the offences that we're seeing being reported are related to, um, so property related offences, to me that, that screams addiction or, or substance related needs. We're seeing intimate partner violence or domestic violence and hate based, gender based violence um, rising, that's screaming to me that we really need to ask people how are are you in your relationships? How are you at home? Um, How are you managing some of the stressors in your life currently that you're being that you're experiencing and then we're also seeing numbers associated with homicide which for a lot of people that's where the fear and anxieties really I think begin to rise but a lot of the homicides again unfortunately are going back to looking at intimate partner violence and then as well as organized crime related incidents so these are all relational based activities and we don't always think about organized crime or gang activities as relationship based but it is and so if you look at these interactions and dynamics whether it's with an intimate romantic partner in a family home or in an organized crime group, we really have to understand those people, those dynamics, those systems to then be able to get at the root of some of the violence and the danger that's associated with those activities.
1: Last question for you, uh, and that is so policymakers obviously respond to data, they look at data in great detail. What should policymakers be looking at now with this new data table?
10: we really need to start bringing together community members um, and individuals and folks who have lived experience and expertise just individuals at all levels Um, quite frankly we also need to shift our definitions of what constitutes crime today and how we're responding to it and or who is responding to it Um, a lot of this is rooted in substance use addiction mental health psychological health all those pieces so for me it's really calling on our government governments at all levels, municipal, provincial, as well as federal, to work together to provide funding to our communities, because it's the community that holds the knowledge and the expertise in all of these areas. They just don't hold the resources or the power. And so it's, it's governments calling on community members and community groups, organizations who hold that expertise, who hold the connections to those with lived experience, to bring everyone together to a table to start speaking about what is crime, what is safety, and what do we want this to look like moving forward together, I think.
8: Really appreciate
1: your time, Dr. Peters, today. It's so nice to be able to dig into the data and get some interpretation from somebody who studies this, what it's all about. Thank you for joining us this morning. Greatly appreciate it.
10: Thank you so very much for having me,
1: and have a great day. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Adrian Peters from Memorial University. Time for a break here on VOCM's Open Line. Back with you after this. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, I'm going to thank this gentleman for his patience, Glenn Royal. He reached out to me uh, last night, uh, and he's been uh, politely waiting as we've gotten through some other calls. Glenn, of course, is a mental health advocate and uh, has been recognized for his work in this field. Uh, Glenn, you wanted to reach out, I think, after some of the discussions we had yesterday and are continuing this morning about all manner of mental health and wellness and crime challenges. Uh, Welcome to the program
8: yes good morning tim thank you for the opportunity to uh, continue this uh, very important discussion um i'm going to make a statement here Um, sure uh, former uh, media mogul ted turner made a uh, a statement uh, back on an interview with larry king in the early 90s said that you either lead follow or get out of the way and i kind of bring this up from the vantage point that the issue around the homelessness the addictions uh, the mental health issues, the crime, the cost of living, you know, uh, domestic uh, violence, you know, so on and so forth, goes back to the issues of social terms of health. And I know the great work Dr. Pat Caraffrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis yeah. done with the Health Accord. And I think it's time for uh, the, the Fury government, as well as other governments across the country at all, to really emphasize and put the focus on that. As somebody said to me a while ago, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. And one thing in social determinants is around education. And I think from the work that I've done over the years in the advocacy is that I think once kids get up to the age of about uh, grade six or so at all, not everybody's deemed for academia. A lot of them can do trades. A lot of them can go in and do you know entrepreneurship. I think should also be very much pushed throughout the school system at all because I think former child youth advocate Jackie Lake Cavanaugh has said. Uh, If kids miss a big chunk of their grade six education, they're highly unlikely to actually complete high school and go on to post-secondary or get engaged in the workforce. And I think that's something that we really need to focus on. And the other piece of the, uh, the conversation as well, Tim, is around this issue around basic income, because a lot of people say that, you know, you give people money, you know, they're going to become lazy. And it's been proven in other jurisdictions, like the Scandinavian countries, is that when people are actually given enough to have their basic needs met, They actually go back and improve their quality of education, and they contribute back to their community and get better jobs. You raised this so very
1: important question of social determinants of health. Um, maybe explain to people again what they are, because I think what happens is we hear the phrase, we know aspects of it, and then the reason it doesn't necessarily get policy support is because it's so multi-layered. So you've talked a little bit about education. What, what, what will be some of the other economic or other, but what will be some of the key social determinants of health?
8: Well, I think the most critical one is income. Uh, Other one would be the housing because I know we're dealing with a housing crisis, not just in this province, but across the the country. Uh, Education and employment is also part of it, as well as the dynamics of being engaged in the community. And I think... That's something that the pandemic had really started in the beginning is that like when we were all locked down in the beginnings of the pandemic, we were all there for each other. And I mm-hmm. think as we've come back out of this, I think due to the fact of the financial stresses, of a lot of people under relationship stresses that people are under, people kind of scattered and went back to their normal operating in terms of, you know, I'll take care of me and we don't really care about each other. And I think it's the perspective that government, community, business sector, uh, faith-based organizations all need to start to come together to try to tackle this because if we don't, as I've said to, uh, you know, uh, in the other media interviews, Tim, is that like this is not just going to be a health crisis, but this is going to be a public safety as we're seeing that's being played out in in our communities across the country. So, look, you know the
1: healthcare debate, uh, which the ABBICS poll we did last week. Uh, healthcare is a top issue, but the way it is um, identified by voters, at least in our poll and in others, is service, frontline service, right? Can I get in to get my surgery done? Can I get in uh, to see a specialist in a particular period of time Uh, and and that's the way that and and that's all important uh, because accessibility is important but how do you get policymakers focused here Glenn because the votes I would say to you and that's often how we focus uh, those who get elected focus the votes aren't in the hard slogging of the social determinants of health or can you make an argument that they are
8: um, it, it can be, Tim. And I just think that I think if everybody really engages with their their politicians and potential candidates to say that, look, enough is enough. I mean, Michael uh, Jones went out to my dear friend Tina Oliveira last year uh, for, for, for losing her, her dear son Ben. And it's like it's time to look at a different direction. So I go back to that statement that Ted Turner made. is either you lead, follow, or get out of the way. And I think maybe it's time for people to get out of the way and, and, and get and out, get out of following and actually leading i think we need as like tony wake made a statement this morning on your program at all we need a new thinking we need a way to make things better i know they're difficult decisions to make but i mean if we're continuing to going down this road of not making change in policy and legislation what sort of outcomes we're not going to make different outcomes are we tim
1: I uh, will'll uh, we'll continue to repeat the mistakes of the past last last question for you because this is where I see this playing out social determinants of health at a very high level and it's really polarized and that is in safe supply you heard uh, Jerry Lynn ask Minister Osborne about it this morning um, I'll focus more on the West coast where there's a raging debate at the federal level about safe supply and it focuses again on making sure that people who are drug users who are struggling with their usage and struggling to get off, that they have regulated spaces and safe drugs to use as they transition from their life. Um, You will have uh, conservatives, and not just conservatives, but others say, no, 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 just, you know, you got to deal with it entirely differently. Either throw many of the people in jail or uh, focus entirely on mental health supports. And there's a key role for mental health supports, but given the polarization of the safe supply debate, at least on the West Coast again how do we break through glenn
8: it goes back to education tim um i'll I'll throw out a a thing for yourself and your listeners to do some
1: sure please do Um,
8: blackbird blackburn center in portland oregon uh, was an organization opened about 50 years ago by a gentleman that was seeing the issue that was developing there that went up through you know the west coast of the country at all and what he did was kind of being that person-centered approach where they brought people in, gave them the housing, gave them the health care they need and they ultimately gave them employment. And I think around the issue of that safe supply is that like, again, a lot of people like even we had the debate of the marijuana when it was legalized Mm -hmm. back in the day. Uh, A lot of people were very, you know, poo-pooed. to said, are we going to go towards harder drugs? I think education, education, education is the key. And sometimes it's going to take a while for certain demographics to understand this. But if we do not teach the community what's going on, we're ultimately failing everybody.
1: All right. Going to leave it there. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your patience and appreciate you reaching out. We need to keep, hey, listen, we got to use spaces like this to push people to move on, on these areas. Thanks for your call, Glenn.
8: Thank you very much, Tim. Thank you for the great work you've done for mental health over the years as well.
1: Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. I'm um, going to move to another subject and a, and a different burn. This one, Jerry, the Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills in the MHA for Cornerbrook. Uh, we're going to talk about Ukrainian supports in a minute, but given I've got such a prolific politician, i got to do some raw politics with Jerry Byrne. How are you, Jerry? <laughs> Tim, I'm uh, nervous now. <laughs> oh, yes, I know. You're shaking in your boots all the way from Cornerbrook to Ottawa. Yeah. That's the, the Jerry- Jerry oh, just First off, thanks very much for having me on the show. and It's really exciting to have you on the show. You had a great dimension to things. Oh, my God. The pandering. They're all throwing up in their seats. Let's go. Now, Jerry, Let's listen. Go. Uh- um, raw politics. Uh, first, I want to get—I want to get to the issue of cabinet shuffle because you've lost a really good immigration minister. Not that the new one is—is—is uh, is, uh, is not up to par. But we'll get to Sean Fraser and the cabinet shuffle in a minute. But what I am fascinated by, Jerry, and you're in the unique position, I think, as being the only person right now in Newfoundland and Labrador who has served in Ottawa as a federal cabinet minister and is serving in the provincial cabinet here. Of course, we've had that before. But I am baffled on the fuel service charge and the raw politics of this and your government along with the other atlantic provinces arguing for some relief uh the prime minister when he was on the program holding the line on that stephen Guibault, <laughs> very resistant to change but i keep hearing it and i see it in the data jerry this is hurting the federal liberals uh, across the region. I I realize you have to be careful here, uh, but why why do you think there's such political hesitancy to come up with a regional approach here, given the political damage it appears to be doing right now to the federal liberal party? There is no explanation for it, Tim. Listen, the bottom
11: line here is that the policy itself of pricing carbon, pricing fuels to try to to uh, stimulate a market response to climate change. There's a, there's a rationale for that. There's a reason for that. There are many policy options. But let's get to the core of this. And this is why Premier Dr. Andrew Fury has uh, really taken this on. And I'll say this to you, Tim. There is a reason why, after probably one of the largest, most significant cabinet shuffles that any sitting Prime Minister has ever done in one single go that I can recall. I mean, you've been around a long time. I don't know if in midterm a sitting Prime Minister has done as such a significant cabinet shuffle uh, with many, many players leaving cabinet, some players coming in, some reshuffling. I can't recall, but it's, it is significant and it has to do with the Prime Minister's agenda. Uh, but where did the Prime Minister go the very day afterwards? He came to Newfoundland and Labrador and Mm -hmm. only to Newfoundland and Labrador and it's because in my opinion he's getting the most resistance and the most effective the most effective uh, pushback on this policy from the government and the Premier, the Liberal Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador that is why he came here to Emphasize his policies to try to uh, to stoke some, so curry some favor for them, saying that uh, you know that they weren't uh, that he's going to maintain them, but there is a reason for it because he's feeling the heat from Premier Andrew Fury, and who is a leader amongst the entire provinces in getting this going, and who only is the only sitting Liberal Premier in in, in all of Canada. So I can't understand this. A lot of people can't understand this. When you look at the uh, the option of pricing carbon to be able to change behaviors, uh, the marketplace Tim has already changed the price of carbon. So whatever the intended objective and outcome by Ottawa in all of this, you know, it did not necessarily need the 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 overriding hand of government. To create this policy, it was done by the marketplace already. And so we're well in excess of what was ever intended by
1: Ottawa through all of this. And what the premier would argue, I suspect, and the other Atlantic premiers have argued, too, is we're a unique marketplace in Atlantic Canada. We don't have the choices they do in Ontario and Quebec. We also, particularly in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, don't have the geographical options, the geological options that they, they do in other places. It, it, it will be fascinating to watch. Just just want to pick up a little further on that cabinet shuffle, then uh, obviously the important issue of of um, the many Ukrainians that are here. But that is, so you've lost Sean Fraser. Uh, who, I, I think, is one of the top performers in the government, uh, also fellow Atlantic Canadian. You've gotten Mark Miller, who is no slouch and also very close to the Prime Minister. When you look at uh, your federal counterpart and the shuffle in general, you've mentioned it briefly, what's your takeaway on actual things that substantively can and will occur now with those changes? Well for me I really welcome the
11: the changes because I've had a great working relationship with Sean Fraser. He's now moved into housing. Yeah. One of the things uh, Tim that uh, that I started working on some time ago is getting some additional support. Uh, for not only Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in when it comes to the housing uh, situation, but as well for our newcomers. So Sean moving in from immigration, very well aware of the situation not only in Atlantic Canada, but also in Newfoundland and Labrador, and our incredible performance when it comes to this. I mean, Sean, you know, my, my friend Sean used to use Newfoundland and Labrador whenever he used to go to other parts of the country. He'd talk about the success of Newfoundland and Labrador in, in and you know, grabbing hold of and embracing immigration as an economic and social development tool. And so, so he gets this. Now he's in, he's in the housing portfolio. Could not ask for a better position, a better colleague to be able to, to be there for that. Now, with Mark Miller, I've, I've known Mark for many, many years, so we, got, we, we received some great success out of Sean in doubling our immigration uh, targets our immigration allotments for Newfoundland and Labrador through Sean. So with that said, let's
1: carry on the momentum. So from my portfolio, (laughs) I, um, I'm pretty pleased. Uh, and we will watch to see, uh, see how this all plays out. Last, last question for you. And, and you mentioned um, the Ukrainian resettlement, Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, gotten, getting a lot of national recognition for it. Uh, how, do, how are things standing with that? How are things standing with providing uh, th- these new arrivals to Canada, the people of the Ukraine supports? Well, we've got 3,000 Ukrainians now. Wow, really? 3,000? 3,000 yeah,
11: 3, Ukrainians living in Newfoundland and Labrador. Many, many families, some uh, still arriving. For example, there's, there's some Ukrainians that arrived uh, this morning, uh, f- you know, from, uh, not only from Poland and from the outskirts of, of Ukraine, but some are choosing or land in other parts of Canada, and they are choosing to come to Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, one of the things about all this is that <laughs> when you have a war, when you have, you know, just the, the conflict and the destruction of war, and you have refugees, because that's what Ukrainians are. Mm-hmm. They are yeah. refugees in every sense of the word. They come here with two suitcases and just a boatload, Of skills and talent and character and attitude to be able to contribute to us it's up to us to be able to make sure that we uh, we respond to their needs now one of the reasons why Ukrainians need a special response is because the government of Canada does not treat them as refugees as typical or traditional refugees they do not supply the supports one of the things I was able to do Tim was for uniquely for Newfoundland and Labrador, get significant federal supports for our Ukrainian efforts. So it's not Newfoundlanders okay. and Labradorians. But here's where – this is one of the messages that I want not to – Got about out a minute, morning. Jerry. I appreciate that. If I could get out one message. We are treating our Ukrainians as we would – or we're trying to move the, the treatment to them as we would other refugees – and so that's one of the reasons why ukrainians don't get uh, certain supports we have a uh, a wage subsidy program for employers To be able to hire Ukrainians, we'd ask you, you know, any employer who uh, feels as though they could uh, benefit from Ukrainian in their workplace, reach out to the ANC. We've got a homestay program to be able to support Ukrainians moving into the houses of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians in a very traditional, very normal, very sensible way. We're supporting the homeowner in that. Reach out to the Association for New okay. Canadians to
1: get that kind of support. And let's make this uh, initiative still keep the momentum going. Uh, so important to the province. We need immigration, and uh, the people of the Ukraine have demonstrated their strength, their character, their perseverance, and their desire to make great lives wherever they go. All right, leave it, we'll leave it there, Jerry Byrne. Thank you for the call today. Thanks, Tim. I really appreciate the time. Okay, that was uh, Minister Jerry Byrne. Time for a break here. We're running a little long. Tom Davis, you're next here on
0: VOCM's Open Line. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation.
12: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to
5: Open Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning, starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line. Tom
1: Davis is kindly going to hold on because we probably have the busiest person in the city of St. John's on the line right now, and that's Royal St. John's Regatta Committee President Noel Thomas-Kennel. Noel, how are you?
13: I'm great, thank you.
1: Yeah, you must be busy. Uh, so, uh, yeah. I thank you for making time for us. Um, <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's funny listening to all the stories of the regatta. Reminds me as a young fellow, my dad used to work in Labrador, and he'd come home just so we could go to the regatta. And most times, it went off on the day. So, first question: what? What's it looking like tomorrow? What are you? What are the odds, Noel?
13: What are the odds? I am not promising anything. I know. Oh, you're good. People out there doing roulette. Um, So it's looking okay. uh, I think... Unfortunately, by, uh, by tonight, the weather forecast will probably change another five times, so um, we will have a look this evening, and uh, we've kind of got our sources that we look at, and we have discussions pretty much all night, and then we'll meet in the morning. Um, I think the announcement is uh, for 6 o'clock, so we'll, we'll let you know then.
1: <laughs> Do you get any sleep the night before? I mean, it, it has to be off. the most anxiety-ridden day the day before. <laughs>
13: Absolutely. And of course, you know, everything's a buzz down at the lake this evening. So who would want to miss that? We're down preparing, but also enjoying sort of the, the last buzz before before tomorrow. So we'll be down. Most of the volunteers are still down uh, getting ready. and tying up the last few few uh, knots, and then we'll enjoy ourselves for a little bit, walk around the lake, enjoy uh, some of the music that we have planned for this evening, and then I don't think we'll sleep, but then we'll be back at the lake by
1: 5.30. Well, and then if you enjoy getting buzzed yourself, you can do that tomorrow evening when all is uh, is said and done. It it seems to me um, that there is a bigger Buzz around the regatta, than there has been just in not in terms of the people racing. And we'll speak about that in a moment, but mm-hmm. it, it it seems like people are more excited. Maybe it's another post-COVID thing. Is that right? Is it building? Think, what's what's your take on it?
13: I think so. Um, you know, St. John's obviously has this one great big celebration day where everybody can enjoy it. You know, we've got our folk festivals and George Street Festival and etc. But literally anybody and everybody can come down to, to uh, regatta day and there's something for everybody. Um, so I think that post COVID, I hope to someday not have to say those words yes. again, but, um, you know, last year it was still a little bit tentative. Um, we were back to a normal regatta, but I think this year people are more comfortable living with COVID the way that we are. And, um, um, you know, I think that it feels just perfectly normal this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so, for sure, I really anticipate a lot of uh, a lot of people to come down, and it doesn't look like it's going to be too hot. So that's also another bonus for rowers and and uh, vendors and and spectators. So it'll help. Uh, keep people around the lake for a little longer I think throughout the day
1: and that and that's awesome because it's just such a fun day so just on the on the data um, how many how many races how many rowing teams participants can you give us a sketch of that please
13: absolutely yeah so we have uh, 19 races and they start at 8 a.m uh, we have 71 crews one this year which is wow. a great number. We're back to pretty much normal. Um, The men's championship race would be at 6.30 in the evening. So we'll have 19 races, and they end at about 5 o'clock or a little bit short of 5 o'clock. We'll have a little break, and then men's championship race at 6.30, women's championship race at 7. And for the first time this year, last year we had the first women's long course. This year we have the first men's short
1: course. So I'm super excited. Yeah. And tell me... Because I, I don't think I've ever known the answer to this. I've known lots of friends who have uh, done the work that you have and really love it, being part of the regatta committee. But how many volunteers does it take to put off a day like this tomorrow?
13: <laughs> well, uh, we, we normally have a complement about, of, of about 50 volunteers, you know, plus or minus, uh, never plus, I guess, but minus one or two. So our, our uh, top is 50. Um, we do also have a number of past committee members who have been given the, the honorary life member title, so they come and help us throughout the day and throughout uh, other races that we, we have in the year, so I would, plus our staff, of course, who are running the boathouse, so we've got, I would say, about a complement of about 75 people total who, who run
7: the whole
1: day wow. well good for them and good for you and, and i it's funny you say the honorary life member i know my late cousin who died last year john perlin mm-hmm. was given that last year and he uh he he was very touched uh so thank you for doing that i remember it was a big big moment for him because he had a long involvement with the regatta very last question for you of of what I'm sure will be a day of answering questions and this is one that came up yesterday so I'm just giving you the question the listener gave me and it was the listener was frustrated because now there is a controlled access or a barrier uh, between the boathouse as he described it and the uh, and the rowers can you speak to that or what the gentleman was talking about and why that may exist if it does exist
3: um,
13: I'm not- quite sure. Uh, I would imagine that that would be the fencing that goes around the winter. Yes, surfboard. he was talking
1: about the fencing. Yes, that's it. Yeah.
13: Okay. Uh, I mean, of course, that's that's our operational area, so we just need to make sure that it's fully safe, you know, safety protected. We have our uh, crews and our staff pretty much running back and forth the dock, so we can't have public right up okay. to the water. It's, it's really an operational area, uh, and it has been in place for as
1: long as i can remember to be honest okay yeah it, uh, and again it may have been there just maybe it's more obvious i don't know all right anyway good luck tomorrow noel try and get like three four five minutes of sleep uh you got a busy day ahead of yourself and and congratulations to you and everybody for continuing to commit to this awesome important event in our province and in our city
13: thank you so much for having me
1: <laughs> all right uh, Noelle thomas Kennell, the president of the Royal Newfoundland uh, Regatta Committee, taking a break. And now, Tom, you are next. After the break, you have waited patiently uh, here on VOCM's open line back shortly. Well, our next guest is a gentleman and certainly scholar of sorts. Uh, and that, of course, is Tom Davis, a regular caller. Always enjoy talking to Tom. And today, Tom wants to talk about um, the Atlantic current collapse could lead to extreme colds in Europe and North America. It has a wonderful name on it. It, but not wonderful consequences. Atlantic Meridional overturning circulation. Did I get that right, Tom? Or I'm sure I got that word screwed up. I think it's meridional, but Marie, you're either. right, meridian. It is the meridian. Yeah. Meridi- meridional. I, 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 watching too much soccer, calling it the Mary Donnell. Anyway, go ahead, Tom.
14: All good. I want I want to start with uh, a shout out to Nicole Kylie and just let her know we're all thinking about her. She's been on my mind lately. Um, you had cliff small on last week and um, yes you know at the time he was speaking and you know I struggle because I've got one foot in a conservative mindset and another foot in a caring about the people and the future mindset so it's a difficult world to live in and I, I envy people sometimes who manage to put on a their blinders and can just speak from one side of the talking points and and you know some of the things that he said um, I think, need to be refuted because a lot of times our leaders, I don't think they take the responsibility enough when you're dealing with existential challenges. I mean, it's one thing to talk about promising a chicken in every pot, but it's another thing when we're trying to influence the behavior of uh, the residents of Newfoundland Labrador and Canada in general to reduce their carbon footprint dramatically to avoid the uh, possible humanity as we know it consequences ending consequences of our actions every day and and a lot of times um you know you struggle because you know there are real people who are really struggling and 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 it's like a boiling frog analogy they're in the pot and and it's like some leaders just want to stand over and say it's going to be okay um here's a little bit of money uh, a few ice cubes i'll throw in there now and it'll keep it cool for a little bit longer but but it's going to get hotter because those ice cubes are going to melt and And I know it's a tough balance for them because they're concerned about their main concern probably might be getting reelected. So, or maybe even getting control of the country. So I just want to call him on some of the things he said, and then we'll get into AMOC, which is, as you already said, that's an acronym. Um, One of the things that keeps being said over and over again is Newfoundland and Labrador is not like a big producer of carbon dioxide or whatever. So why should we be suffering? So, so, and that's totally not true. We're, you know we're the largest in the country by province i mean alberta depending on how you measure may or may not be more so that's the first thing that's just not true if we were a country we'd be like the sixth or seventh most polluting country in the world really only after middle eastern countries so per capita and it's
1: not and, because- and you're basing that just just so again so we're to, yep. to Doug, uh, basing that on our oil producing capacity you're making that statement
14: No, that's only about five tons per capita. So that'd be about 25% of our emissions is the – and that, that, by the way, is underreported according to uh, uh, satellites that fly over and measure the emissions. Like, that's a self-reported number as far as that five tons per capita. And and – And so that's probably much higher than that.
1: Who knows? So just maybe, Tom, so people and again, I'm not trying to disrupt you, but I just want to make sure, again, in precision and and all of this, because your point is well taken on that. How do you come up with that um, calculation that we are the most polluting?
14: Well, it's a self-reported number. You can okay. go to NRCan, which is uh, Resources yep. Canada, and they measure how much we we and, and it breaks down, so much by transportation. Okay. And again, one of the challenges that the people who are suffering the most, actually, in most cases, are not the largest polluters because they don't have they don't have all the toys and okay. and they don't fly around. Uh, the exception will be those who heat their homes with oil, and and that's not necessarily a choice right now. But, but we're trying to help them move away from that because because again, they're you know poor people who heat their homes with oil are definitely boiling frogs and we need to help them get into heat pumps ideally and something that will be less affordable. So anyway, so it's, so it's just not true that Newfoundland and Labradorians are not. I mean, if you look around our lifestyles, you know, there's a lot of waste in it and that waste translates directly into uh, carbon footprint stuff. Now, you know, people who have to get in their cars and drive to medical appointments, you know, that doesn't add up to be as much as people think it is when you sit down and calculate it, you know, every liter of gas you burn is, is five, um, pounds of CO2. So, you know, you can do your math on how much gas you burn every year and you can see what that works out to be. But 20 tons is what the average Newfoundlander burns. But the, okay. the people with the most resources are burning way more than that. People are flying around and people who have big vehicles and, and, you know, all the different things that are waste So it's just not true that Newfoundland and Labradorians are like these poor people that are suffering and that we're being punished by these measures. You know, and we don't seem to be, be changing our behavior very much on mass, like the the number of pickup trucks and everything else doesn't seem to be declining. And you know, and maybe that's because that's all the car dealers sell us. Well we need to tell send a strong message to the car dealers and say, Listen, I don't wanna buy XYZ, I, w- I want this. So you know, like right I mean China's making electric cars that cost fifteen thousand dollars. And we need to from a national level, we need to be sending a message to the legacy curve. Companies that that SUVs and pickup trucks, whether they're electric or otherwise, are not sustainable, and we need to change those vehicle choices. So that's one thing. So and the other thing that he said is that we're this great carbon sink because of all our forests, and that's just patently untrue, because the net impact over the last 15 or 20 years of New of Canada's forests has been negative because the wildfires, like this year alone, are offsetting that. Yeah. Right, and also insect infestation, which is caused again by warming of the plot. plot of the planet, and droughts, which dry out forests. So, so in actual fact, our forests actually emit more, and especially this year, it's going to be insane. It'll be way off the charts, because right now, even the, the burning of the, of the forests is estimated to be twice as much carbon dioxide equivalent as everything that we emit as a country, just the burning of the, just the wildfires. So, so these things are just not true. And I, I just want to start there, because cause if we can't have, like, baseline truths um, then from our leaders, in particular, and I have a lot. Of, I mean, I like Cliff, and, he's, and I really think he's doing a great job. So I'm, I'm, this is not personal. Yeah, I, no, not no,
1: I understand. One. I understand you're trying to set a baseline. I got about two minutes, so you want to okay. go to Amoc then? I do. Okay, so so
14: Amoc, which is which is basically cold water going from the north down and warm water going up and it's like a conveyor belt and and the process is impacted it's very complicated but it's impacted by the salinity of water how much salt is in the water how much it evaporates and the water and also how much fresh water is in it so it's one of the it's one of the really scary tipping points and my and a tipping point is everybody always assumed that climate change would happen very gradually over millennia over thousands of years Mm -hmm. but then they started to realize that there are these magical tipping points and when you reach a tipping point, things can change very quickly, like within a decade, things can go downhill very quickly. And it's happened, it's happened before in the history of the world that, that this AMOC has stopped. And, and usually it centers around ice ages because the impact is that the hot, wa- the hot water doesn't get transported, the heat doesn't get transported from the south to the north. And so but, – but it also, it also means that, that the cool doesn't get down to the south. So, so the impacts yep. are that the northern hemisphere – Cool, but the Southern Hemisphere cooked. And when you had no people living and it was just animals, or you know, if if there was a very very small number of humans, it wasn't really the end of the world. It was, but it wasn't. But but when we have you know over eight billion people now that we're trying to feed, it is really dramatic when we have when we have anything that impacts the climate on a dramatic level. So so the IPCC, which is this group that has been putting out all this data on climate change, said that they figured there was. There was a 10 percent or so chance that would happen within this century, and that that was kind of the baseline that everybody was going. And now 10 percent is very high. likelihood. like if you had a nuclear power plant in your neighborhood and there was a 10 percent chance it was going to explode, well, you probably wouldn't want to live in that neighborhood. So 10 like no. percent is 10 percent is a high risk. But but anyway, now this new report just came out by and
1: you got one minute, Tom. I'm sorry yeah, to cut. That's okay. One this Go report ahead.
14: just just came out that that now a, there is a much higher likelihood based upon a, a more broader reaching analysis in particular salt and fresh water melting from Greenland saying that there's now a fairly good likelihood that it'll happen as early as twenty twenty five, but as late as twenty ninety, so the baseline being twenty fifty. And that all that all that is not that's just facts, okay? So facts that can be debated, whether it happens in a century, doesn't matter. But the point is that we can't ignore these things and there are things we can do and I just call on people to again, don't be afraid, take action and to, for leaders to Try not to scare people, but be part of the solution instead of um, yep. telling people to stay in the water. It's not, you know, it's not too bad. Enjoy the you know, you know, Florida over 100 degrees, Newfoundland off Newfoundland over 25 degree water, like records in Mediterranean, North Atlantic, and, and down in the Southern Atlantic, all at the same time. So, you know, we we need yep. to take action and not be afraid, but take action.
1: I totally agree with that. Uh, Appreciate, as always, your time. Tom, thanks for the call. Thanks for your patience and waiting.
14: Okay. Take care, everyone. Stay
1: safe. All right. All right. That's Tom Davis. All right. You know what, John Walsh? We're going to hold you for now, if you don't mind, because I want to hear it about the Kids of Steel Triathlon. And we're going to go to the 11 o'clock news.
0: And then it's you,
1: John Walsh, right after that.
0: Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to Open Line.
1: Now we're gonna to go to John Walsh on line five. He's been waiting. Thank you, John. You got the Kids of Steel Triathlon at Barring Park. Tell us all about it
15: yeah good morning how you doing i'm just calling in with uh a, a kind of notice for the general public uh about the events going on tomorrow go for it my friend so, yeah so uh the capital subaru st john's kids of steel triathlon and so it's going to be taking place tomorrow morning at barring park it's uh weather dependent we go if the regatta goes so okay. the first notice is to ask any of the families that are registered or anybody coming down to cheer to keep an ear to the regatta the go no-go announcement tomorrow morning because if the regatta goes, we go and vice versa. Okay. Uh, the second thing is just a notice to the general public that we're going to have 500 children plus probably about a couple of thousand family members in and around the Barring Park area from 7 a.m. until around 2 p.m. tomorrow afternoon. So we'd ask that people please be extra cautious and vigilant in the Barring Park area with regards to little children excited crossing the street, families crossing the street, and so forth. Um, And finally, just a notice to those who are registered, the athletes' kit bag pickup, which it's really important that they try and make, is later on today Uh at at Capital Subaru on Kenmount Road from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m perfect now i've done a
1: few i've done a few olympic triathlons. or no sprint triathlons baby triathlons what 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 does tomorrow's triathlon look like what are the actual events for the kids i mean in terms of distance what do you got
15: well, it starts out with elementary school children, so children as young as uh, kindergarten, and they would do the shorter distance in the Barring Park pool, and then following that uh, swim, they do a shorter bike ride and a shorter run, so about a okay. 50-meter uh, or so swim and, um, you know, a short bike and a run. And, you know, we get it's the cutest thing, because you got little kids with <laughs> arm floats and all this kind oh, of I stuff. I bet, right? yeah. You know, so if you're looking for something fun, To look at before you get on to regatta, the kids of steel is always worth the cash, right? And uh, any can people still register, or is it all uh, tightened Uh, up now? We're completely sold out, which is fantastic because last year, coming out of COVID, uh, as with many other public events, you know there was a a slow return to uh, activity. But yeah, we're chock full. Well, that's Uh, awesome. Yeah, the uh, the events for the older children and it goes up to yes. uh, children fifteen years of age get steadily longer, and so then those children will be obviously of greater ability and endurance, and uh, and so then again, yeah, I mean, fifteen years old is, is uh, great ten, eleven. So you got some pretty serious competitors of all ages, and lots of fun to be had. And uh, certainly, we would encourage people if they want to come out and, and cheer, or if they got any time to volunteer, that. Uh, they drop into barring park around the uh, pool area and we'll be more than happy for any help they can offer. All right. Well, good on you and, and everybody who's pulling that off. That
1: sounds like a great event. Wish we had things like that when we were kids, but now they do. And uh, I wish you well tomorrow, John, good luck. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. All right. The kids of steel triathlon in barring park. If you're interested, you heard John give you all the details. Uh, now, a uh, subject that's been dominating these airwaves, not just when I've been here, but certainly with Patty, and that is fentanyl. We're going to talk to Ruby on line one who wants to talk uh, fentanyl. Ruby, are you there?
12: Yes, I am. Thank you for taking my call.
1: I'm happy to do so. Tell us your perspective.
12: Well, the fentanyl thing, I think, in order for us to try and and help our Young people and adults. It's not only young people. There's adults as I, I guess as uh, as old as sixty years old that are homeless on our streets, and the only thing they're turning to is fentanyl or cocaine. That might be strapped with fentanyl. And I don't know if the outreach program is still in process or not. If that's going, if they're out there doing that. Uh, One time a few years ago, uh, the outreach program where people would go out and pass out clean needles and help try and help those drug users was very big in our street. I'm not sure if that's still there. Uh, When I saw on TV last night, behind this uh, area where this young boy lost his life. Mm-hmm. I saw daily, weekly, monthly uses there. Not even cleaned up. Yeah. So I think the time is come that us as a parent, I'm a grandparent, I'm mm-hmm. a parent as well, I want to help and I want to be able to do something. But I can't do it alone. So if yeah. we are coming out there in great numbers and we can organize and we can do things to help our young people you know 25 years ago i owned and operated a young offenders a home for young offenders
3: Oh, okay. and, drug,
12: and drugs was really rampant back then
3: mm-hmm.
12: But I would sit with those young people. I would talk with those young people. I would cry with those young people. I would pray with those young people. I did everything that was humanly possible to do to try and get them off the street and get it out of our schools. because back then it was in the schools, was on the school properties. It was everywhere. It may not be as dangerous as what it is today, but it was there. And what worked of, then,
1: Ruby? Sorry to interrupt you, but what, what, what did you find work then? And is any of that applicable today?
12: Well, you show you care mm-hmm. and you love them. And their life is very important. And there, there are better things that you can occupy your time with. You may have been kicked out of your parents' house because you didn't show up at 10 o'clock at night and you have to sleep in the street or you have to sleep in the shed. I think that we have to show more love and more affection to those people. Let them know that they have a meaningful life, that there are people out there that care for them. You know, I love the drug user as much as I love the alcoholic or I love this one or that one. And we have to show them that we're there to help them, and that we're there to care for them. We need to do that in numbers. We need to do that in great mass. And I'm sure the government has buildings here uh, that we can meet probably once a week, or once a month even. But once a week would be an ideal time. And bring, let some of those people come to us, and let us let them talk to us. Maybe they don't have a parent. Maybe they do have lovely parents that can't deal with it, don't know how to deal with it. And sometimes I'm in that predicament as well. Sometimes I can get angry. But then I have to talk to myself and say, listen, that young person got an issue. He's got an addiction that's far bigger than any issue that I ask. Yes. So yeah. I'd like to be able to help those young people, but I can't do it alone. No, we can't. need to do it in numbers. We need to be able to help them. We need to be there if they need us. If they If they make that call and say, okay, I've decided to do this tonight because my mother kicked me out or my father kicked me out or my mother and father are separated. I have nobody that loves me. I have nobody that cares for me. Yes, you do. There are hundreds of people out there that love you and care for you and will do anything to help Mm -hmm. save your life. And I'm one of those people. And I just need... help and direction of how can I do that if somebody else don't step by and help or give me a call and say, we are ready tonight to have a meeting what can we do to help those young people
1: well good for you for calling good for you for making the call to people to serve uh, and help and uh, i think that's such an important thing and if people hear you today i'm sure you're okay if uh, dave our producer shares uh, your phone number if people call in in response to all of this and here uh, here i uh, echo everything that you say we we all have to help where we can uh, to make a difference thank you for your time today ruby
12: And thank you very, very much. And all you young people out there that are using this fentanyl and and probably anything that's strapped to kill you, please, please, we love you and we will help you in every way we can. Just don't take that extra little bit of fentanyl. Make a phone call. Make a phone call to open lines. They will have numbers that they can give you to call to get help.
1: We, We can indeed do that. All right. Thank you, Ruby. Have a nice day.
12: You too. Thank you.
1: Okay, uh, very moving call, and a, a call with a lot of meaning in terms of action. Time for a break here on Open Line, back with Larry and Chris after that. All right, welcome back to Open Line. I know this next fella on the line. hes I, I don't know, Larry, you're kind of in this stage with me where people identify you by your children or your or your niece and nephew. I was called so-and-so's uncle the other day. I'd say Larry Peckford is the father or of the mayor of Camphill just down the road. Is that who you are, Larry? (laughs) Yes sir fine <laughs> uh, fine mayor she is too a fine mayor she is indeed and of course larry's well known to do labrador and his daughter nancy is the mayor down
4: the road from us here and she's been re-elected once right has she yeah yeah she did 75 uh, percent of the vote so you know she squeaked in you know <laughs> she's pretty popular anyway larry you want to talk about wreck <clears throat> house and the province's lack of uh marketing there is that right Yes, sir, I do, so thank you for taking my call. uh, I'm a seasonal resident of the Codroy Valley and love it here and spend as much time as I can. But every time I pass Wreck House, my blood pressure goes to the roof. I get mad, I get upset because there's a parking lot in the centre of Wreck House, which is on the Trans-Canada Highway, and it's unmarked. It has a sign that's uh, faded and and probably going to blow down one of those days given the winds there. And I, a couple of years ago, took it upon myself to contact some local people, and they were frustrated here in the valley and in Puerto Best. And basically, it's in no man's land, and I called the province as well. And oh yes, they were they were aware of it. But right now, it's a pe- patch of pavement and a poor sign that marks what should be, what should be. If you listen to the weather network or any of the national weather forecasts, should be a point of interest that we should be promoting, and we are not.
1: And why is that? Do you think is it again location where it is? It doesn't get the same tourist volume. What what's your rationale
4: as to why well, well, it is Tim, why that is the case? Tim, when the boat comes into port of Ass, every yeah. car that goes twenty miles, yeah, forty kilometers is going to pass through Ricos. I mean, it's not like it's an off the beaten track thing. It's on the it's the old trailway. What they call the trailway yeah. now, the old trail bed. And it's got quite a human story to it because of Lockie McDougall, who was a human wind gauge. It's, it's, it's a story that if it was in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or Ontario, it'd be they'd be beating the hell out of it to 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 make people stop and have a look and and of course the vistas from the wreckhouse with the uh, long range mountains and and uh, you know it's it's just amazing. I, I have a friend with me this time down in Newfoundland with me, and yeah. she just she just loves it. She can't believe it. When, when, when she said, where's Wreck Where's Wreck House? And I pointed out to her, and I I had to apologize. I had to apologize because there's nothing doing. There's a piece of pavement in the middle of it with a small storyboard, I think, is there. I've gone in there. Mm-hmm. But the tourists are using the, the the parking lot for overnight parking, I suspect, to avoid the regular parks in the region. And it's just so sad. It's just so sad. So I I, I knew you were on the go. I've been listening to you the last couple of mornings and i said i gotta call my buddy tim and see if he, you know he's a man about town he's got some influence he's on the board of regents now for god's sake God i was on the board all. of regents so you're i trailed away for you uh, <laughs> thanks buddy any, anyway anytime tim anytime so anyway uh you know but this is just unfortunate so unfortunate that we've lost an opportunity here so here's my go at it again today i'm sitting in my boxcar you know, Reagan's the Cadaway Valley, and I said I had the radio on. I said I'm going to call Tim and see if I can bring this up.
1: So, just so who have you? Is anybody doing any advocacy locally on it? Like, what is what is happening on it, or has happened well,
4: on uh, it in the recent uh, past? Nothing. Okay. So, but I have called. There's a, a group here in the Cadway Valley. Uh, apparently, uh, from what I gathered, their jurisdiction, if you call it that, extends to Breckhouse, but they don't have the resources or the capacity yeah. to really promote this because they're not, you know, because they've got many fish to fry. And yeah. uh, really, it's the province. It should. Be, there's many, uh, many a uh, tourist attractions has been taken over by the province, and it's on the Trans Highway. For God's sake, it's not on the highways and byways in any particular municipal jurisdiction. So uh, it just languishes there, sadly, and I can't imagine I'm the only one who, you know, thinks that something should be done because it's sad it's it's interesting to me you raise it too
1: because when you I like you uh, see a lot of the Newfoundland tourism ads because we live in a different part of the country and we get to see them a lot and we travel a lot uh, I can't think of a time and maybe I'm wrong or maybe it's done quickly when wreck house has been showcased in some of that I mean you have your right. traditional you have your traditional things you show old you know, <laughs> signal hill and gross yes. Morn and yes, yes. Uh, sometimes Terra Nova uh, and a lot of the uh, uh, the saltbox houses uh, of, of our many beautiful coastal communities in Trinity.
4: Any idea why it's forgotten, Larry? I mean, you must have given some thought to that. I don't know. When I, uh, when I took it up I, I, at the time, that's five or several years ago, I phoned the minister of the day. I phoned tourism in Cornerbrook because they have the jurisdiction for the West Coast Regional Tourism Office. They seem to be aware of it, and oh, yes, but it seemed to come down to, well, they were po- everybody was pointing fingers at somebody else and then, cr- quite frankly as it's in my view given it's on the trans canada highway given its uh, s- status uh, it should be taken up by the province they should provide the leadership in my view and they haven't, and as a result, within within what twenty kilometers of the ferry, which empties hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars and tourists every year, they sail by that. And I swear to God, they don't know. There's a small sign yeah. buried in the bushes somewhere, which if you look close, you may catch it. But uh, it, it's it's a lost opportunity, Tim. And uh, I'm I thank you for uh, and your producer for giving me an opportunity to say it one more time.
1: Uh, well you you've had a uh, you, uh, chance i'm
4: sure others will pick up the
1: call i know steve crocker uh, and others pay attention to this program so uh, we'll see if we get something done on it larry and uh, enjoy your time home this summer uh, Indeed. it's uh,
4: it's uh, it's a good part of the province you're in good to talk to you good to talk to you too and uh, let's keep uh, let's keep uh, working on this uh, this this has got to change all right good man talk to you later thank you all, all
1: that, all was the best. There. that was larry see you talking to See you in Ottawa. That was Larry Peckford talking about Wreck House. Good points he makes. Um, Maybe we'll see if we can get some answers from the Department of Tourism on what they're thinking about Wreck House, and it's in the state that it is. All right, he's been waiting, this next gentleman. Chris, you want to talk about service animals, and you got an issue with a service animal being allowed into a movie theater, but it was a cat or something? Tell the story.
3: Yes, um, I was not there, but personally, I have a few friends that went to theaters last week and this week, this week in okay. past, and we have a guy there that brought his cat three times. Really? Yes.
1: How did he, in a, in a, just fascinated, how did the person bring the cat on a leash, in a carrier, what was the...
3: Uh, actually, this person at home is living in his car, but at the same time he brought in a doctor's note, but this doctor's note that he put on um social media is from the regatta day from last year and everything was closed. So someone made up his note for him. But he showed it to the theater's manager with I I phoned up and said that was did you see the note? Do you know what day that was in? And they said, Yeah, but the note said it but the note is not really qualified because it was on the guide they everything was shut down. And the cats are not serving animals. They can be emotional poor ammo animal, but animals, they cannot yeah. be brought into the theater because the people reaction to them. My friend almost had to go to the hospital if he didn't recognize the cat five minutes later because he was starting to get reaction to it.
1: He had an allergy to the cat, is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, he was getting getting there almost to the point where he had to be rushed to the hospital. But, um, yeah, it was terrifying. I don't know why the are doing this and why they're getting away with it, but something has to be done about this.
1: Well, I imagine, again, uh, as you say, if, if the th- theatre, uh, the, the, the usher or whomever, or the manager looked at the note it, and it looks legit, it's pretty hard, for a, to be fair to the manager, for that person to say, no, you can't bring the animal in if there's a note. I, I mean, maybe there's a better screening process around all of that, uh, but I can see why, particularly uh, in the theatres, they're run by large corporations, they don't want to have an instant of turning somebody away that doesn't help your circumstances so what do you think the solution is then well than- I
3: don't think what well, to me I don't think cats should be about in there a dog they don't see maybe they made dogs going but for people to bring a cats in for a more sort of the poor animal um, I don't think so because there's a lot of people gonna have a real reaction to it not only that it's not safe and hygiene So, where the cat gotta go in the middle of the movie
1: well, yeah, I, I don't know about the hygiene. They're not
3: cleaned. The dog is cleaned.
1: Uh, well, how do you. Uh, well, you don't want to get in a fight with a cat owner or that. I have a sitting next to a cat, and the cat's clean. But I, again, I didn't see the animal in question. Nonetheless, I appreciate your perspective. And if anybody has some clarity they can give to it, uh, please give us a call. Thank you, Chris.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Okay. My poor cat, she's lying here washing herself. She's pretty clean, but uh, and I don't know how you I mean, you have to be pretty close to a cat to react to it, but I get the point on allergies. Anyway, you have a take on that. Give us a call. Time for the 11:30 news here at VOCM.
0: Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, the Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. And relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Well, they don't call this the most important conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador
1: for nothing, the tagline of EOCM. So now to respond to something Tom Davis said about his position, uh, as he articulated to me last week when we were talking about Justin Trudeau on uh, the fuel surcharge, and to respond to comments Tom made about his position, I have the his. In this case, it's Cliff Small, the MP for the Coast of Bay Central Notre Dame. Cliff, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Well, boy, look, I must be winning the lottery. It's like I'm at Smitty's or something and got a two for one. I got, got you a second time since I've been here.
16: Oh, I, I can't go on Smitty's here on this call. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's great, to, it's great to be on your show. And uh, just to let you know, I'm headed down to Harbor Breton today
17: for okay. the
16: anniversary of that uh, terrible tragedy at the landslide in 1973. Um so to attend their commemoration ceremony of that. And uh, another thing, when it, when it comes to Costa Bays, uh, we've uh, commissioned a study uh, to highlight the need for more Coast Guard uh, services mm-hmm. there and uh, kind of waited until the new minister got in place here. I haven't presented it because I knew a shuffle, shuffle was coming way back there, maybe in May. So and now, so, petition
1: that is sorry. on that. Yeah, you've been very good with the petitions too. People don't realize they can be a very good legislative tool. So just for people who may be tuning in, Tom Davis earlier was responding, as I said, to a call Cliff had made after Prime Minister had visited and was talking about the conservative approach to uh, climate change. Cliff acknowledged uh, it's real and technology was the way forward. Tom then went on to say what Cliff didn't get was that um, the carbon sinks in Newfoundland and Labrador aren't as big uh, and as valuable as Cliff had suggested and also that um, the, uh, what was the second part, the carbon sinks, oh yes and that Newfoundland and Labrador's footprint was actually bigger than we appreciate appreciated when it came to greenhouse gas emissions. So that leads to you, Cliff. How do you um, want to respond to Tom?
16: Well, Tom's doing a great job in building this profile to, for his political career, but I think he'd be a lot better off going out and knocking 5,000 doors in summer. Um, you know, we just had the highest carbon-emitting Canadian visit our province. Flew from Ottawa to Gander, drove out the dwelling gate there was about 15 vehicles on the highway supporting his trip he left here he flew to montreal uh new New brunswick back over to pei you can look you can look and and see the prime minister's itinerary every day of the week and uh it's time for the prime minister to put our money where where his mouth is, really. That's that's what I think. And in terms of the carbon sinks, uh, right now, the consensus is that the oceans take more uh, sequester more carbon uh, than trees and and vegetation. In fact, and Newfoundland and Labrador, per capita, probably has some of the highest amount of uh, coastline per square kilometer in the world. And in To Tom's comment on the forests, there needs to be mitigation. Climate is changing. We need water bombers, and we need commitment uh, by the federal government to put something in place, uh, some kind of a, a, a task team, to be able to go and jump on these forest fires and put them out. And well, one thing that forest fires create is they create... An awful lot of square acreage where the Prime Minister could plant some of those trees that he promised.
1: <laughs> uh, go ahead. I, I- yeah, no. I was just going to say one, one thing. I, I get your point on on the prime minister and the carbon footprint, and it's fair enough argument. Except I think you know we have to be fair to a certain degree. Whether he needs 15 vehicles or he needs five vehicles, I mean, he, whether all, all of the political leaders, including Mr. Polyev, including Mr. Singh, if they want to come to Newfoundland, unless they want to go really slow, do tend to fly. And when you're the prime minister, and this was true with Mr. Harper, you know, there are certain security requirements that come with that. So you. Have have more vehicles and you fly and all of that but I but I take the point I guess Listening to you, listening to Tom, and hearing this more often, when, and I don't think the attacks are going to stop, you know this, Cliff, on conservatives apparently being vulnerable on climate change. When might Canadians expect to hear more from from the conservative party on a climate change plan or whatever their climate mitigation plan is going to be going forward? You spoke about technology before. Pierre Polyev spoke about technology before. When might there be more details spelled out?
16: out as we build our platform we'll be we'll be putting our policy in place we're not going to put that out there for the liberals to gobble up and use like they've done several times with some of the some of the bills that they brought forward they've taken bits and pieces of things that were that came from our policy which is which is good because it means you know Mm -hmm. they're they're, they're listening to what we're saying, and we're being effective. But carbon capture and sequestration, converting coal-burning electricity plants to natural gas, which right off the bat, the bat for now, as an intermediate step, cuts the carbon emissions by 50%. These are things that need to be done. The United States have dropped their carbon emissions substantially. And they haven't even signed on to the Paris Accord. Uh, So we're going to get there. We believe in climate change. Once upon a time, the glacier uh, that covered North America was as far south as Florida. So climate's been changing. It's going to continue to change. We need to do our part. We breathe this air, and we're going to do our part.
1: Last thing i go before you leave, and I wonder, is this going to be a real rural-urban battle? When we talked last week, uh, we talked about the fuel service charge and uh, the the fact that the federal government, not moving, not bending when it comes to Atlantic Canada and our unique circumstances. We know the data, three times the impact in Atlantic Canada as opposed to Ontario, Quebec. Do you think, as often happens in election campaigns, we're going to have different themes in different areas? I mean, you, you talk well. Rightly about the cost of living and the challenge that not addressing the fuel charge on a regional basis is having, but in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal, where there are big pockets of seats, you have people who will eat up the government's message on climate mitigation, not understanding what's happening in rural Canada. How do you manage all of that?
16: Well, that's going to be for uh, our our election teams, I guess, in both parties. They're going to figure out the you know the game plan, but. People in rural Canada and rural Newfoundland, Labrador, are sick and tired of being told how to live their lives by people in metropolitan Canada. We all know the reality of life in rural Newfoundland, Labrador, and how far we are away from where things are manufactured uh, all over the world. And it impacts us on the things we buy and on the things we sell. So it's, it's, it's not as simple as it seems. And the people here aren't picking up what the Liberal government is laying down. I've got a couple of other things uh, uh, here. Uh, I also heard uh, Honorable Jerry Byrne, uh, he's he's quite happy about the immigration situation. And I'm happy that we brought in 500,000 immigrants. We really, really need them. But I can't say it's an outstanding success because uh, there was no plan to house them and i'm i'm talking to single moms with a couple of children who were just basically evicted from their uh from their apartment where they live top floor of a house paying twelve or thirteen hundred dollars a month uh and the homeowners uh basically either because they can't afford to, to keep up with the interest rates on on the mortgages or and, and it all comes down to the, the, the supply demand. There's not enough houses to keep up with all the immigration that's, that's coming in here, and it's it's driving the demand. And then the, the Bank of Canada is trying to drive that demand down with interest rates, not working. It's like a dog chasing its tail. So, uh, I like Sean Fraser. I've dealt with him. He was he was yeah. always expedient in dealing with any issues I had for him. And I don't, I don't think that it's, uh, it's really a good move to take him from where he was because he was, he was good at what he did. The problem was, these government departments should have been working together, then maybe that should be the same government department, immigration yep. and housing. So then they might be able to work together if they're in the
1: same office, you know? It's really interesting on that, too. Uh, I, I know it's the Globe and Mail, so it doesn't matter in <laughs> Newfoundland and Laborator, but there was a column <laughs> uh, written yesterday that said just that, that if we don't find ways to make sure we house the immigrants we need, along with building the housing for, the, uh, for people who are already here and have been here and are having housing needs. We're going to un- un- unintentionally—that's the word I was looking for—create further uh, tensions and divisions that we don't need. And so true. Uh, any quick last words, Cliff? Got to go to break.
16: Quick last word. I'm under I'm the Trans Canada. I'm looking at the brush. I just drove past an area where three people have been killed in the last couple of years, in the last basically in the last year, and. Brush gets cut on the Class Two highways and on the byways, and 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 there's a big need for it. Even you know, I just drove up from the Bayport Peninsula. Uh, there's a, a serious brush problem there. But the Trans Canada never has a brush cutting program unless they're doing road work. Now, the Trans Canada is a, is a highway that's heavily funded by the federal government. There needs to be a serious look at cutting some of the brush along parts of the Trans Canada. It's a it's a traffic dense highway. It's a it's a it's a highway that, that moves all you know, all of our goods are moved by tractor trailers. Speeds are higher. There needs to be a program to to cut the to cut the brush on the Trans Canada. There's no votes on the Trans Canada but boy, I tell you, there's lives on the Trans Canada. Yeah. And uh I, I hope I hope that the new Minister of Transportation, Roads and whatever else is in his title, uh I hope that they get to work on this. Uh I not you know, I don't I don't want to say there's blood on anybody's hands, but you know, it's it's a serious risk to the motoring public and hopefully something gets done.
1: Well, I know a guy that once tried to launch a lawsuit against the government for the moose population. You may know him, too. Anyway, time for a break here on (laughs) VLCM's open line. Talk to you later, Cliff. Take care. All right, buddy. God bless. Bye-bye. All right. That was Cliff George. uh, Cliff George. Cliff Small. Look, Cliff, I elevated you to artist status. Uh, Cliff Small, the the MP. Time for a break. Now, back with your last call shortly. Well, welcome back. We still have a couple of minutes if you want to call. If not, we're going back to the cats, not the dogs. The show hasn't gone to the dogs. It's gone to the cats cats. Now... Let me give you some perspective here. I am the child of a uh, mother who, many of you know, ran the SPCA. And we were a cat family. We had dogs, too. Uh, Well, we had relationships with dogs, meaning we had other neighbor's dogs we fed and tended to and the like. And uh, saw lots of animals over the years. Anyway, I was always told, and no, this is a joke. Not everybody has the same sense of humor as I do. But I was always told if I developed an allergy to the cat... I had to leave and not the cat. It was said lovingly, and thankfully it was never tested, because I don't know what really would have happened with my mom, but... And there were times she wanted to to neuter me. I don't know why. I don't think I ever behaved in such a way that merited that uh, behavior. Again, a joke. Now, you heard Chris call and express concern about people bringing cats to the theater. And one of the things he noted was cats are dirtier. We'll get to the dirty cat in a moment, but I want to get to Arlene, who uh, tweeted me, and I, she always does, and I appreciate that. She said, "I just heard uh, you say you have to be pretty close to a cat to react to it. I can tell you that is definitely not a fact. I would need to be able to—I m- would not be able to be in a movie theater with a cat. My body would quickly tell me if it was there." Okay, I don't dispute that from Arlene. I just, okay, I recognize that. Look, I am not part of the cat crusade that now wants cats admitted to theaters. I can tell you this. If I took my cat to the theater, the cat would be cracked and would be unhappy, and I would be unhappy, and everybody else would be unhappy. So I'm not sure why anybody would want to take a cat to a theater. Maybe it is an emotional support pet. Get all of that. But let's keep the cats free from the theater, but build them good spaces. But I do need to go back to the defense of cats being dirty animals. My cat, Marv, named after Captain Marvel by my son Patrick, that cat is as clean as a whistle. Cleans herself five, six, seven times a day that I can see and probably more. The war on cats needs to end. Just keep them from the theater and keep them away from those who are allergic. Did I do well, Mum? Can I come home now or am I thrown out? Because I didn't forcefully defend the felines. Ah, the cats. Open line has gone to the cats and not the dogs. Now, what else? Oh, we do. We have Barbara on the line. Oh, I was just a, wow, I'm going through my cats. Barbara, you're going to save people from hearing my cat rant. You want to talk quickly about panhandlers and new Canadians. Uh, this will be an interesting one. you got about two minutes. Go for it.
17: Well, my solution to people who ask me for money on the street is to – I always carry – little balls of cheese those little commercial baby balls of cheese with me okay. or apples and i offer those to them so i think they might be hungry mm-hmm. but i never i never give the money i just offer them the cheese or the apples
1: okay that, that yeah because allegedly people want the money to buy food and other things that's smart okay
17: and it's uh it's they they either want it or they don't. They're usually hungry. And the other thing is I, I wanted to suggest when you were talking about all the attention for the sports clubs and the sports groups and so on and sort of patting each other on the back about that. I think one thing I haven't heard and I'd really like to hear more about that, is offering um and suggesting people who are newcomers to Canada get involved in some of these Club, uh, Not clubs, but sports groups, mm-hmm. because they, depending on their age and which men, I mean, girls or boys, it's a great way, fun for them, and a good way for them to help settle in the communities and become a part of Canada. And many of them also have those skills already, some of them. And I, I don't hear any word from you or anyone else about inviting people who are new to Canada to join in with the sports clubs or the sports groups, I should say. Uh,
1: well, th- thank you for raising it. It's the first time you've raised it with me, so I can give you a word on it. I think it's an awesome idea, and I, I see it with my son's own soccer team, uh, lots of uh, children of people who are new to the country came out come out and play, and it's fantastic for integration. So I'm all for it, and I, I think a lot of sports organizations in different sports do uh, try and do it, uh, because because it's, uh, sport can have such bonding power. So there's my word on it. I'm with you 100%. I see it happening. It needs to happen more.
17: Well, I just haven't heard you, that lady you were talking to yesterday. Oh, Kathy. It.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the point she was making about diversity, I think, and perhaps I sh- should have driven down further, that there are lots of new Canadians, uh, new people coming to the country that they've brought into in, in curling. So it, so it is happening, but I appreciate you making the point about us needing to be more clear on on it. Anyway, thank you, yeah. Barbara. i got to leave more, it there. Thank more you.
17: Enthusiastic, more enthusiastic for all sports for them.
1: Exactly. Fully agree with it. Alright, thank you, Barbara. Thank you. Take care. Uh, Awesome point, and I should have raised more of that. All right, another show done. Uh, Been a ton of fun. A lot of uh, key topics we've got through today. As always, want to thank Dave Williams. This show doesn't happen without him. Uh, He is a uh, difference maker, and, of course, this show doesn't happen without you. Always a thrill to sit here and listen and learn and chat and talk about things that are important to the province we all love, Newfoundland and uh, and labrador so look forward to my next time here and how can i not end the show without this meow meow back on vocm open line again soon and come tune back here at nine o'clock tomorrow morning to listen to open line here's one more meow for you meow for now that's open line today